All right, Salaamu Alaikum, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. I'm so excited um, to know that actually we are down to our last two Meccan surahs, which is really amazing if you think about it. Um, for people who don't know, usually the, the order that we have been covering the surahs has been a result of prayer. The Sheikh will actually pray um, on which surah to present, and this has been going on since the beginning of Project Illumin. So when we started, um, over a year ago, last, I guess, June or July, um, with uh, Surah um, Hadid, Al-Hadid. Um, since then, I think there's only been maybe one Surah that was uh, not prayed on, which was after we came here to Ohio. But so, I mean, subhanAllah, we have then pretty much been systematically covering all the Meccan Surahs, and we only have two left. So after today, then we'll only have one left. So that's pretty amazing. Um, and then we'll see what happens when we start entering into the Medinan Surahs. So, inshallah, that'll be very cool. Um, today, I am very um, honored, excited, and happy um, to let you know that we have a very special guest introduction speaker. Um, as you know, we've been um, introducing, or you know, we've been wanting people to get to know some of the superstars behind the scenes. And so you've seen, um, you know, Joe gave his introduction and Marwa. And um, today we have a really um, a special superstar that has done um, an incredible job, in particular, on our social media. So if you have come across like our Instagram posts, um, seen us on you know Facebook, um, and even seen like we've done actually now some really nice changes to the website. Um, a lot of that is really driven by the energy and creativity of um, Ramin, who I'm going to ask to come up and, and talk about, uh, or to give the intro. I'm not sure exactly what he's going to say. I have a little bit of a hint. Um, <clears throat> but the thing about um, Ramin that is super special is um, he's, he's our youngest member. Um, he is 22, can I say that? Okay, because I mean, when I think about, you know, like where I was when I was 22, I was like such an idiot and such a loser. So it's amazing just to see that someone, you know, at 22 can be such an incredible, real force for change. And so when he started here, he actually had not yet graduated from University of San Diego, but there he had started the MSA. Um, he finished while, you know, we were here um, this last summer, um, and he finished Phi Beta Kappa and also a second honor society. I'm forgetting which one is it Beta something? Or? What's that? Mortarboard. Okay, it's like it's hard to keep track of everyone's amazing accomplishments. Um, but I, you know, and and now that you know, I've I've come to know Ramin. I I really like. I just I treasure him as a person, and I also really um, rely on him for his energy and his just you know positivity and um, just such a beautiful soul but he's done so much I mean when we when he came on and you know started working on Instagram and whatnot I think we had about a thousand followers or something like that and now we, we have crossed the 5,000 mark um, and that is you know in a very short amount of time I think eight months nine months something like that um, and so he, you know, is, is just amazing. So, but we, you know, he gets a lot of ribbing here because he's the youngest one. And, um, but, you know, he's the way, he's the future. And so I think it's really important. I, I wanted him to come give the introduction because he has a very unique experience and, um, and a unique perspective on the things that we're doing here because he represents, you know, the, 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 well, I don't want to say, we have other generations too that, you know, obviously have their own roles to play, but in terms of thinking, you know, multi-generationally in terms of the younger audience that, you know, we've been doing this for such a long time that we kind of are used to speaking in a particular way and thinking about our audience um, in a particular, particular age range. 
And so it's a little bit more challenging to think about, you know, someone who's 22 and younger, what will appeal to people and, uh, you know, what, what is the experience that they've had with Islam and how can you reach them because they will be our future. And we know that um, a lot of Muslim youth are really disenchanted with what they have seen at the mosque and, you know, we, we're trying to present something very fresh and something, um, you know, that is also very traditional in a sense. I mean, it's, it's a way of, you know, intellectually engaging, um, you know, the moral principles and applying them to the challenges that we face today. But, um, you know, I, I'm so excited to know, like, from, you know, from his perspective, um, how, how the whole experience has been and, you know, what hopefully um, Usuli can do, you know, what Muslims need to do to um, re-engage that generation. So please come up and this is Ramin. Hi, alaikum everyone. First, I just want to say, I mean, it's just such an incredible blessing to be in this space to share my reflections on the importance of the Asuli Institute, as Grace mentioned, as, you know, the youngest individual here. Um, and as she said, I did finish undergrad just a few months ago. And the reason I underscore that is because, you know, the research fellows that we have just in this room are incredible. We have MAs, JDs, PhDs, people with all sorts of experience. And, you know, we also have people watching on YouTube Live and on the interactive group who, you know, come from all parts of the world and have different backgrounds. Yet this message resonates with each and every one of us with clarity. And, you know, this can be so easily taken for granted, but because, you know, coming across a Muslim organization in both the age of um, post-colonialism and in an age of Islamophobia is just it's really hard to do that and for us to all be here in a way that really helps us connect with one another is just remarkable so in that sense that's kind of just what I want what I want to start off with just describing the power of having this group um, but I do as Grace mentioned hope to speak more directly to our fellow young Muslims um, to just underscore the, rebel, uh, the relevance of the Asuli Institute and just how imperative it is that we act now to implement this methodology and, you know, in both the intellectual and activist spaces, especially if, you know, we're from a place that might not have as strong as a Muslim community around us. Um, so, of course, as president of the Muslim Student Association in a Catholic university, I recognized from the start this really serious challenge of being seen as the representative of Islam. Because of course, if you are of a minority background and you're in this you know, predominantly white space, especially naturally, you're seen as the representative. And you know, this can be very empowering for some, which is great, but at the same time, this always presented an incredible burden for me. Because you know, we ha I learned very early on that you have to take a very serious stance and be very rooted in your tradition and in the truth in whatever you want to speak about, regardless of how large or small the topic may seem. So, and that's something that Asuli Institute really taught me above all, is no matter what I'm speaking about, you know, it can't just be on my whims. You know, everything that I say, it can't just be because I'm speaking as the only Muslim in the room. There has to be some type of reason, some type of intellect, a lot of spirituality involved in that as well. But, you know, I go back to a lot of the activism spaces that I was a part of and I saw just among so many, unfortunately, you know, it's so easy to, you know, use it for your own agenda and for your own ego and to kind of present yourself in a way that sets you apart. And, you know, I've seen in so many cases, you know, 
Muslim, young Muslims especially trying to stand in and preach as you know a stand-in sheikh because we are the only Muslim in the room but you know what I really learned above all is that we have to work harder to be diligent and to go back to the scholarship and the true intellectuals like the one I have the honor of sitting right now next to Dr. Khaled Abul-Fadl but now of course the challenge becomes how do we today in our day and age when so many scholars and our resources are flawed and plagued with just Wahhabi ideology, how do we find these sources? Um, and again, this highlights the importance of the Asuli Institute. One of the first things I remember that the Sheikh talked about was that even if you agree with 50% of what a scholar says, you should consider yourself lucky. And I mean, Imagine closely following a scholar and every single thing that they have taught, that they have led through example, has resonated with your heart. And not just that, but the scholar is truly the embodiment of the most generous, caring, kind, humble, loving human being I think I'll ever meet. And this is what I really want to get across to everyone here today, is that this is what the, sets the Asuli Institute apart. Someone like Dr. Khaled Abul-Fadl, who know who has done the extensive research has done the extensive work to be presenting what he's presenting today and you know all we have to do now is simply open our ears and open our hearts and truly internalize the lessons in these khutbas in these halakas and that's how we set the example of who of who a true muslim is again refer to the experts and that's the biggest thing that i've learned here and that i've just had you know the huge honor of just having Dr. Khaled Abu Fadl as the example. Um, but of course, this is where a lot of the disappointment kicks in with our community. In particular, with the lack of support we receive, especially financially when it comes to donations. You know, the Sheikh has more commitments than most of us can imagine. You know, he has at least three public appearances a week for the Asuli Institute. He is now, um, you know, has all these commitments at the law school, which comes with both student and faculty demands. And just being a sheikh, he receives an abyss of emails, one of which, or a few of which sheikh, uh, excuse me, Grace presented beautifully in her uh, last introduction entitled Humor, Heart, and Patience, which I highly recommended you all uh, listen to. But, and on top of all these obligations, he's also been dealing with a lot of chronic illness, which truly no one understands the extent to which it requires fighting and patience. And it's honestly a shame that, and you know, Marwa has talked about this before in her introduction, just the pure shame and disappointment that as a community, we haven't even been able to fundraise to just simply buy his time for UCLA so he can do all of this full time. I mean, what does that say about our community? And again, I know this aspect of it is really difficult because fundraising really requires, in a lot of ways, few individuals who are blessed enough to have an abundance of wealth and resources to share. So, and what I want to do now in my, um, in my introduction is kind of just address more so a lot of those who might be young in my age who don't have the resources to donate but can help out in other ways. So as Grace mentioned, I help manage the multimedia platforms here. So I'm so lucky to see so many incredible messages of just how, you know, the Sheikh and so many individuals here have inspired so many of you. And honestly, that is so touching and it really keeps us, you know, grounded in what we do and it helps us continue in our endeavors. But I still urge each and every one of you who 
you know, simply follow us on social media or who are simply watching the YouTube videos or on the interactive group, I want you to still ask yourself, how can I take the initiative? You know, it's one thing to reach out to Grace and let her know that you're here for help, which is amazing. We value that so much here, but it's a whole nother thing to take the initiative on your own to make this knowledge accessible and to implement the teachings that the professor teaches. And I'll tell you one very simple way, especially us young Muslims can do this. This is taking a look at the call to actions that the professor has implemented time and time again in many of the khutbas and even halakas. So I've been a part of a number of activist spaces and you know I've seen time and time again so many students, Muslim or not, they'll jump onto a Zoom call to you know start calling their representatives or to coordinate a protest or to you know create a petition or just simply create awareness, which is amazing. But why are we not doing that with the ethical call to actions that the professor lays out in his lectures? Because to be honest, in my opinion, it, it, it's a religious obligation. You know, I'm going to go through a few of the call to actions that the professor has made in a number of the khutbahs. And I really ask each and every one of you to take a look at these khutbahs and act now to bring more traffic and engagement with those content because that's really how we make a difference. So just yesterday, the sheikh discussed in the halakat entitled in uh, the hypocrisy, schizophrenia, and the value of Muslim life. He discussed the need to boycott Hilton because of its plans to build a hotel over a site which once housed a Uyghur mosque but was demolished because of China's project against Islam. That's one simple thing. Advocate for your community members, for your family to simply stop engaging with Hilton. I mean, if you just watch the khutbah that the sheikh gave yesterday, it's full of so much just, it's one of the most beautiful khutbahs I've ever seen. And he's, again, like I mentioned, doing this with all his other commitments. All we need to do is simply then act on that and to bring awareness to it. Next, um, what about the Sheikh's numerous calls to boycott speakers like Hamza Youssef, who is, again, supported by the UAE and speaks for unjust rulers, including white supremacists and Zionists. Yet, I see so many Muslims hop on social media, repost, oh, Sheikh Hamza Youssef, they love his whatever charismatic speaking engagements, and, you know, they just bring more and more traffic to these unjust speakers who have a separate agenda. And again, this is something that sets out the Asuli Institute. You go to all these Muslim organizations. I mean, just name one of them. Go, go on their website, look at their board of trustees, look at the type of individuals that are on their board, look at the type of people that are donating, and look at the fine print, and you'll see all the political agendas that are at hand. And we know from these halakas that that is unacceptable. Let me just give you a few more examples. Last year, the Sheikh gave a call to action to free Ahmed Sebi, a scholar of comparative religion who, like a number of Muslim intellectual activists that the professor has spoken about, was arrested and disappeared in Egypt. Where, where is the outcry for that? You know, we had made a post on social media when that had first come out. I don't even think it got 100 likes. And lastly, this one especially, I haven't seen any mainstream media um, especially not Muslim media, discuss it, but the um, a call to action to speak out against those who support Saudi's Neom project, which would again create another major financial center, center in the Middle East to attract capital from all over the world, essentially making the rich richer. And guess what? As the professor discussed, it's at the price of 
killing the native Muslims who are living in that land, protesting the demolition of their homes. You know, these are just, what, four or five call to actions that the professor has had in his khutbahs, and I still don't see any mainstream Muslim organizations or uh, let alone new sites talking about it. But again, I just want to emphasize that this is how you take initiative. You know, to my fellow young Muslims, I challenge each and every one of you, just take one week to watch either, you know, the current halakas and khutbas we have going on or watch the previous ones and listen and truly, in addition to just simply going on Instagram and reading our posts. I mean, people go on Instagram these days, I'm sorry to say, and post the most mindless posts, even the, Mus the Muslim organizations, which have no value, no, it's not rooted or anchored in our tradition or in Allah. <sighs> I, I mean, sorry, I, it's just frustrating because these are such simple things we can do, and yet we're going to, you know, the low-grade version of things, which isn't okay. So please, again, I urge you spend one week watching a halakha, a khutbah, reading our Instagram posts, reading our emails, exploring our website, and just amplify these platforms. Visit asuli.org, email Grace, email myself, email anyone here, and just see what a transformative impact that that will have on you. Sorry, I don't mean to take up more time, but seriously, thank you all so much. And I'm looking forward to another incredible halakha, inshallah. And Again, I urge you all, please take action and reach out if you have any questions. Thank you. If we could clone Ramin, <laughs> that I wish that I had just a small percentage of Ramin's like, energy and drive. And I think what I love the most about Ramin is um, his passion and his commitment and honestly, um, his really strong ethical conviction because he gets really, really passionate. And as you can tell, um, about you know things that are just ethically wrong. You know if he sees something, we talk about something. Um, he's so moved, and he's just ready to like be unleashed. So a lot of times, my my um, my attitude about Ramin is, what is our best way to unleash him? Because he is a force by himself, and I'm I'm so grateful um, to know him. And you know, and I think that Asuli really owes um, a debt of of gratitude also because. You know, it's this type of like um, youthful energy and openness and um, you know love and passion that is going to take you know take this message to the next level. And um, I hope that you know we can really appeal to more people like Rami because um, that's what it's going to take to to change our current situation. And you know, it's it's a dark time for Muslims, and so. Um, we need as much um, youthful energy and passion and inspiration as we can get, and we're so so blessed to have Ramin here. So thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I'm looking forward to another amazing um, halakha, and thank you for joining us. I thank Ramin for this um, wonderful talk. I've um, 
just want to comment that Ahmed Sabir continues to be disappeared. Um, of course, you know, he, he has been completely absent from the radar of any of the human rights groups because he's a Muslim scholar. And uh, as we all know, um, Muslim scholars don't have uh, much of a value to them in our modern world. So um, he continues to be disappeared. And um, and his sole crime is uh, say is saying something that apparently offended the Coptic Church. Um, and I will add to the action items that Ramin mentioned uh, the imperative of releasing a scholar uh, of the magnitude of Salman al-Auda in Saudi. In Saudi. Uh, you know, a anyone that accuses Salman al-Auda of being a fanatic or a terrorist or anything like that is either uh, either on the payroll of the Saudi government or is a complete idiot and just an, an, an absolute dunce, um, in woefully ignorant human being. So Salman al Oda's scholarship, I mean, some of his books are actually available in English, and if you read his Arabic books, uh, this is one of the most important scholars that we have produced in the modern age, and he continues to be imprisoned in a Saudi jail, uh, the, the, the official position of the Saudi government in the, is that they still, the prosecutor still demands that he be given the death sentence, and they keep postponing his trial um, with no end in sight, and of course, again, because he's a Muslim scholar, um, because he committed the crime of writing a book that attempted to reconcile freedom and democracy with Islamic theology, law, and history, um, uh, he's jailed. And um, and because he's a Muslim scholar, no one talks about him. I mean, he's not on the, on the radar screen of any of the human rights groups. Um, he, he's not like a, you know, a Saudi woman that demanded the right to drive a car or vote or something like that where at least some organizations in the West are interested in keeping track of what happens to such a person. If you're a Muslim scholar in the Emirat, in Saudi, in, in Egypt, in, uh, in Syria, in, in so many parts of the Muslim world, unfortunately, uh, you have no value. There's an absolute hypocrisy in the world. And I, you know, I, I just, uh, it, is, it is shameful that a scholar of that caliber continues to be in prison and the world just keeps going, moving on. I want to also make a comment about
um, something that was raised regarding Grace's talk last week. Uh, someone commented, someone that I don't know, but I was told uh, that they commented um, about the talk saying that in, the con in Islam the concept of haya is important. And th this provides an educational opportunity because indeed haya is really important. And I just want to uh, just take a few minutes and, and talk about this. Um, first, uh, anyone that has been following what the Usuli Institute has been doing, you know that we speak up, uh, and I make it a personal point, to speak up against any laws that uh, discriminate against muhajjabas, whether in Europe, as, as in several of the khutbas that I gave, or in employment discrimination laws or, or lawsuits that where an employer had discriminated against a muhajjaba for one reason or another. Uh, and this is simply because of my thorough belief that hijab is something that must be left to the conscience of Muslim women collectively, but Muslim women individually. The, it is not my place as a man to lecture a woman about what is solely her exclusive decision and her, her within her province, solely within her exclusive province. And nothing that Grace said I take to be against the practice of hijab. Um, I didn't understand their talk at all to, to even get to that point. The issue is people who make, whether a woman covers her hair or doesn't cover her hair, a litmus test for legitimacy and credibility. And so if her hair is covered, they will listen. If her hair is not covered, then she's out of the community in, in, in some form or another. Uh, similarly, those who make the litmus test for especially converts uh, is whether a woman covers her hair or not, as if her Islam is flawed unless she does that. Whether the hair is covered or not is an ethical slash moral slash legal slash jurisprudential issue that is complicated and nuanced and multi-layered. The person who made the comment about Hayat um, and Hayat means in part modesty in part means um, a degree of bashfulness, a, a, a having a, 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 a an, in, an innate or deeply embedded sense of decency 
Um, so Haya as a term is, is absolutely fundamental as an Islamic norm. The, the, the amount of emphasis on Haya as a moral and ethical value in the life of Muslims is, is uh, beyond doubt. Um, but Haya is in so many is is in, is is relevant to so many aspects of our lives. If you are with a people in which it is um, improper to eat with your mouth open, where your your the food shows as you're chewing it, and you. Regardless of that practice, you continue to do so, and you cause offense to people. That is counter hayat. If you are in a society or a place where spitting on the ground is considered offensive, and you continue doing so, that's counter hayat. If you are in a society where it is not acceptable to blow your nose in your sleeve, as some I've seen in some cultures. And that's considered rude. Uh, that's counter hayat. If you fail to lower your gaze and you are checking out the bodies of men or women, that's counter hayat. If you um, speak about private matters, especially sexual matters, um, explicitly and you you have you, you have no filter about how you talk about these things that's counter haya um if you go around flashing your body drawing attention to your body instead of your ethical character or your reason your intellect or your piety, and you bring attention to your body, that's counter Haya. Haya is this part in a Muslim heart that is partly modesty, humility, where you do not wish to cause offense, and that's culturally defined quite often, but also things that are not culturally defined, like the way we deal with our bodies, so that we don't put our bodies on display, we don't bring attention to the body as something that can be fetishized or sexually objectified, uh, that we insist when we deal with other human beings that attention should be to our moral character, to our piety, to our intellect, not our body. If you fail to do so, that is counter hayat. Um, if you engage in uh, obscenities, if you watch pornography, that's counter hayat. If you talk about, if you speak obscenely, that's counter hayat. 
if you raise your voice and you're loud and noisy and you bring attention to yourself and you have no qualms about, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't bring attention to myself through being loud and, 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 and um, flashy. That's counter haya. Haya is a moral, a beautiful moral character that is summed up in saying that the Prophet ﷺ used to be bashful. He is, his face would get red when someone would say something or uh, forward in his presence. That is the, that is the, the, the heart of Haya. Now, whether a woman shows her hair is counter Haya or not, What I am comfortable saying is that in, in our society, in our time, there is sometimes, it, it, there is nothing that is inconsistent with hair in a woman showing her hair. Regardless of what you, whether you think hijab is obligatory or not, but the issue is of modesty. You could wear the hijab and have no haya. And I see that quite often. If you wear the hijab and you're loud and rude, that, then you have no haya. Your hijab is not going to protect you. It's not going to endow you with a moral quality. If you wear your hijab and your clothes are tight and they you know, explicitly outline your body, uh, that's counter haya. If you wear your hijab and you act, um, you follow or you, you, um, I, you know, I, I, one of the things that have shocked me most in the United States is a muhajjaba that does pole dancing. Because pole dancing is something that is is culturally defined as something that strippers do. It's a it's a dance that anyone you'd say pole dancing do, and they'll they'll think of are strippers. And for muhajaba then to follow that culture and that practice, and to try to say, no, it's a space that I as a Muslim can engage in. That's counter hayat. And the fact that you're muhajraba means absolutely nothing. It just, it, it, it so I, I don't know what the person who made the comment intended by it. I mean, I, I actually didn't read it. Um, but haya is, there are women like my fellow colleagues in, in academia, for instance, um, their haya is their intellect. Uh, they do not define themselves sexually, and if you define them sexually, then something is really wrong with you. And that's because of the way they carry themselves. They're, they're serious, intellectual, intellectually rigorous uh, women. Um, it, it is disingenuous to try to say that one of them lacks haya 
um, because she shows her hair. Same time, there are plenty of people who cover their hair, but they don't have an iota of haya in the way they conduct their affairs and the way they, they deal with their family or deal with their friends or the topics they talk about or even the, their attitude towards uh, their own bodies, which for a Muslim, our, body belong to, our bodies belong to God and we are entrusted as keepers of our bodies. They don't belong to us. And our bodies were not given to us so that we can display them um, to arouse emotions in others that are purient and base. And that's part of the essence of Hayat, is to understand that and to conduct yourself accordingly. Okay. Yeah, we do, uh, we, as Muslims, we, we do need to nurture the, that moral value within us. Um, haya is very important. It's very important to every aspect of our life because it is summed up in, in, in being in good moral character, uh, which is, as I said, some, there is a contextual cultural component to it, and there is a more objective primordial component to it. Okay, alhamdulillah. So let's move on now to Surah Al-Waqa'ah. Surah Al-Waqa'ah, by the agreement of all authorities is Medinian and early, Med sorry, is Meccan and it's early Meccan. Probably revealed in the first two or three years of Mecca. Uh, there are reports that say that there are some verses or some ayat of Surah Al-Waqa'ah that were revealed in Medina, but these are not reliable and I don't put much weight on them. I don't put much weight in, in, in these um, reports. Um, it, there are reports that... Um, I'm not sure how to feel about them, but they, anyway, there are reports that say that Surah Al-Waqa'ah was revealed after Surah Taha. Um, and before Surah Al-Dukhan. Um, but in all cases, we can comfortably say that Surah Al-Waqa'ah was among the early revelations in Mecca, as I said, within the first two or three years. And so it, it, it anchors a, 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 a basic component of Islamic theological belief and the way that we understand what Allah expects from us and how we understand our existence on this earth and how we relate to the, to the hereafter. Many, well, a number of scholars have said in the way that the Quran is organized, 
Surah Al-Waqi'ah comes after Surah Al-Rahman and before Surah Al-Hadid. And a number of scholars said that Surah Al-Waqi'ah is a continuation of Surah Al-Rahman. That to understand Surah Al-Waqi'ah, you should read Surah Al-Rahman and understand Surah Al-Waqi'ah in relation to Surah Al-Rahman. And I understand this argument to a point. Surah Al-Rahman talks about um, three categories of people in the hereafter. And Surah Al-Waqi'ah talks about the same three categories as well. Um, some have said that Al-Waqi'ah is a greater emphasis on punishment while the Rahman has a greater emphasis on Rahma. I'm not yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about these arguments. And let's just say that there are there is a school of thought that attempts to argue that the way that the Quran is organized today, that there is a relation between the chronology of Quran of Sur organized in the Quran. So that will always say, well, you know, so because, you know, let's say Surah Al Baqarah, Surah Al Baqarah ends in this way, so Surah Al Amran begins in this way, and so on. That school of thought I don't find very persuasive, although it, it exists in the tradition, and, and <coughs> it seems to me that the arguments about Surah Al-Waqa'ah being a continuation of Surah Al-Rahman are somewhat forced. But Allahu Alam, I mean, um, people can disagree about this. Um, scholars can, can go back and forth. I don't think it is... Um, a, a, critical to dealing with the core message of Surah Al-Waqa. So, the other thing that we that we should note about Surah Al-Waqa also at the beginning is that um, there is a great deal in the Islamic tradition about the importance of Surah Al-Waqa. So at the, just the very basic level that we have a number of narratives that the Prophet ﷺ would read Surah Al-Waqa'ah um, every day and would often recite Surah Al-Waqa'ah in Fajr prayers. And then we have a number of hadith attributed to the Prophet ﷺ where there, there are two versions of these ahadiths. Some of these ahadiths simply say, read Surah Al-Waqi'ah or recite Surah Al-Waqi'ah at least once a day and talks about the reward and the hereafter of doing that. Some of these ahadiths um, say that recite, if, recite Surah Al-Waqi'ah every day, and if you do so, um, 
that will protect you from fakr, from poverty. I am skeptical of a hadith that treat the Quran as if it is a magical potion that produces uh, you know material results against illness you know recite this surah and you you know so recite surah al-duha and you will find whatever you've lost or recite the surah and you will be cured of an illness or recite the surah and you will be protected from poverty uh, the Quran in my view is not intended to work that way and uh, a lot of course of these hadiths I mean they, they're, they're I would need to be in order to, to, to rely on a claim like that that a surah has the power to protect one from poverty I would need that hadith to be of the highest order of authenticity, and none of these hadiths are. Um, so, you know, technically their chain of transmission is sound, but whether they can serve as a basis for a claim like this, uh, no, they're not of the level of soundness that you can say they could serve for a basis. Uh, of a claim that, like Surat al-Waqa'ah, can protect you from poverty. Now, some scholars have said, well, you have to understand what is meant by poverty. And the poverty that, and here they're, they're interpreting what the Prophet is, is reported to have said. And he said, well, the Prophet wasn't really talking about material poverty. The Prophet was talking about spiritual poverty. That if you read Surah Al-Waqa'ah, uh, recite Surah Al-Waqa'ah every day, that it would help protect you against spiritual poverty. Um, which, I mean, I, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a sound argument. I mean, I, it's, um, if that's the orientation that you want to take, the interpretation you want to give the hadith, then of course, um, it, it would make much more sense. Um, but we, we find this especially uh, among Sufi-esque tafsir that, you know, that some of them reject these ahadiths or don't cite them at all. And some of them cite these ahadiths but say, well, it's, it's, it's talking about spiritual poverty. But in all cases, we have many traditions either attributed to the Prophet or attributed to a member of Ali al-Bayt or attributed to the Sahaba about that all revolve around the importance of keeping Surat al-Waqa'ah as a very active part of your life and the importance of on reflecting upon Surah Al-Waqa'ah, understanding Surah Al-Waqa'ah, reciting Surah Al-Waqa'ah. And if you take the, co the collectivity of these traditions, that's the norm, that um, they are basically uh, instilling within you. For Surah Al-Waqa'ah, I'm going to be 
using Muhammad Assad's translation because I compared his translation to uh, the study Quran and his translation comes much closer to the um, uh, the, the nuanced understanding of Surah Al-Waqa'ah so it will probably save us a lot of time. Okay. So Surah Al-Waqa'ah simply begins إِذَا وَقَعَتِ الْوَاقِعَةِ لَيْسَ لِوَقَعَتِهَا كَاذِبًا So first إِذَا وَقَعَتِ الْوَاقِعَةِ لَيْسَ لِوَقَعَتِهَا كَاذِبًا Grammatically, this phrasing, you you get these uh, extended grammatical discussions about why it's phrased this way. But it, the, the gist of it is that the phrasing in Arabic, either, when you say either waqat, al-waqa'a, then you are saying that this is an inevitable happening, something that will absolutely pass. So the way Allah phrases it is Allah is talking about an event that will come to pass and it will absolutely must come to pass. لَيْسَ لِوَقَعَتِهَا كَاذِبًا And when it comes to pass, none will be able to deny it. Quite simply meaning that all the, uh, uh, all the pretensions about belief and disbelief and about um, what it could or could not be, and all of that melts away with the unfolding of this event. Now, and, and here I'll, I'll pause with this a, a bit. Khafidatun Rafi'ah, this is uh, number three. Muhammad Asad says, abasing some, exalting others. The study Quran says, abasing, exalting. Okay, so khafidatul rafi'ah literally means something that raises and lowers. A rafi'ah is to bring something higher, and al-khawt is to bring something lower. Some understood this in its most literal sense, that what is experienced at that moment is like what you experience in earthquakes. The earth itself will, the crust of the earth will be as if um, going up and down. However, most interpreters read Khafidatun Rafi'ah to mean that this 
event, the unfolding of al-waqi'ah, is going to be determining the status of people. This is when the status of people is determined in the hereafter. Now, why is it described as raising some and debasing others? Is because in on earth you have your status, and your status is often determined by wealth or lineage or power or whatever it is. But al-waqa is the point where all status in earthly life is dissolved. And you stand in a position where now what is going to be defined is the status of people in the hereafter. It's either in the hereafter you are going to be a part of the high class or the middle class or the low class or the lost. No class. Not even included at all. So, Khafidatun Rafi'ah was understood by most that um, it is a figure of speech saying, think, or if, if the moral lesson, the gist of it, is that for a person to contemplate what status will they occupy in the hereafter, because it will have nothing to do with their status on this earth. Okay. And you notice that this is followed with either Rujatul Ardu Raja and the image is that the earth will be shaken severely in what we can speculate is going to be severe earthquakes that will be the prelude to the destruction of life on earth. However, we, we pause for a second because Um, Sufi-esque tradition generally understood or the way that they read the waqa and this this entry verses, these beginning verses of an waqa um, is not solely referring to the hereafter or the final day, Yom Qiyamah. But to, and I, here I'm going to just use from Ibn Ajiba an example of the language and then paraphrase it. So he, he says, um, Mm -hmm. 
وإنما تقع لمن توجه إليها إذا رجت أرض النفوس من منه رجع أي تحركت واضطربت بمنازلة الأحوال وارتكاب الشدائد والأهوال وتوالي الأذكار واضطراب في الأصفار فإن كمون سرها في الإنسان ككمون الزبد الزبد في اللبن فلا بد من مخضه لاستخراج زبده وبثت جبال العقل منه بثه فكانت هباء مبثه لان نور العقل يتغطى بنور شمس العرفان. اوكي. So what is he is saying which is consistent with a lot of the Sufi-esque tradition is that al-waqi'a doesn't necessarily just refer to yawm al-qiyamah but it refers to the dynamic that is absolutely necessary for a person to attain the path of enlightenment. And the path of enlightenment, as Ibn Ajiba puts it, is not possible without serious traumatic testing. Because truth is like the formation of butter from milk. You cannot have, you cannot make butter without thoroughly stirring the milk and putting the milk through a pressurized process that produces butter. And uh, enlightenment, in turn, is exactly like butter from milk, that it will, it has to be receded, preceded with a number of physical and spiritual challenges, the handling of which will decide whether you in fact can elevate to something higher or you fall apart. And in Sufi, in, in the Sufi genre overall, is, the, the, is a firmly held belief that the worst tests are the tests that, um, in which you are tested by, by, the, by the existence of plentitude. In other words, that you have, you're given everything. These are the hardest tests. The tests in which do not involve deprivation. Because they're very difficult to pass. It, it is, it is, it's very difficult for the butter to form from the milk. The, the tests that they believe are inevitable and for most people, and that will either break a human being and they've lost, they lose their way, or transform a human being to be on a path where they grow closer to Allah, are the tests in which they are inflicted with loss, death, pain, um, the things that most human beings experience, and it all depends on how they handle the, this experience. So in the Sufi tradition, when 
then in al-waqi'ah it says and when the earth is shaken in in all the traditional tafsir this is this is taken to mean taken to mean that um, it's um, it's an earthquake forms of earthquakes um, but in the Sufi tradition very much like what Ibn Ajiba says that وَبُسَّتْ جِبَالُ الْعَقْلِ مِنْهُ بَسَّ فَكَانَتْ هَبَاءً مُبَسَّ لَأَنَّ نُورَ الْعَقْلَ يَتَغَطَّى بِنُورِ الشَّمْسِ So effectively, Jibal here are the rational, rationally understood and perceived things that provide you stability in earth, in life. But those things, when you are tested, will be shaken and will fall apart so that your comfort zones are challenged and your normal rationalizations are tested and what Ibn Ajiba says which is not all not is not common to all the Sufi tafsir, uh, is that the purpose of this is to learn to rely on arfan rather than aql, is to rely on a, your um, sense of perception that comes from the light of God rather than your intellectual faculties. Um, some tafsir like Ibn Arabi, um, or, or at least the one attributed to Ibn Arabi, but even if it's not the tafsir attributed to Ibn Arabi, he says the same thing in the Futuhat, is that they, they are more abstract. So I'll give you just a taste of that. And some, like Jilani, are less abstract. No, okay, I'm, I, I changed my mind. I'm going to postpone Ibn Arabi for now. And I'm, I'm going to not always refer to the Sufi-esque tradition, but on, on some points uh, I will, because it's Surah Al-Waqi'ah especially, it, it makes a difference. Um, but then, of course, when we get by the end, I'll give you, I'll wrap up what I think Surah Al-Waqi'ah means and achieves, inshallah. Okay. So, وَبُسَّةُ جِبَالُ بَسَّةً فَكَانَتْ هَبَاءً مُبَسَّةً So that the, the traditional meaning is that the mountains, and we've encountered this, of course, before repeatedly in the Quran, whether the mountains are understood figuratively or the mountains are actually the mountains that exist around us, that they will be in the Yawm Al-Qiyamah, they will be completely demolished. Okay. This is the introduction to talk about an event that, in my opinion, Surah Al-Waqa'ah, in fact, is talking about Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And although, you know, I have a lot of respect for the figurative or metaphorical understanding of the Sufi tradition, but with Surah Al-Waqa'ah, I tend to believe that, in fact, it is talking about Yawm Al-Qiyamah specifically. 
because of the following point, that right away after that introduction, Surah Al-Waqi'ah then talks about وَكُنْتُمْ أَزْوَاجًا ثَلَاثًا that you will be in three groups. We've encountered these three groups in Surah Al-Rahman, but Surah Al-Waqi'ah develops the three groups in a way that we'll talk about in a second. So, what are these three groups? فَأَصْحَابُ الْمَيْمَنَةَ مَا أَصْحَابُ الْمَيْمَنَةَ وَأَصْحَابُ الْمَشْأَمَةَ مَا أَصْحَابُ الْمَشْأَمَةَ So, there will be those on the right, and there they are, that's usually good news, and those on the left, and these are usually the people in trouble. Incidentally, the expression maymana and mash'ama, um, to say on the right and on the left is a... Um, it it a somewhat uncomfortable translation uh, because when the the expressions themselves relate to a practice in in, in pre-Islamic Arabia where they and this is before the the Prophet Alaihissalam was born where they would release birds. And they would a a um, a um, what do you call it? A, a, a pagan priest would tell them if the birds fly one direction, that would be a good omen. If it flies another direction, it would be a bad omen. And they used to call the good omen al maymana, and they used to call a bad omen al mashama. And it had nothing to do with whether they, tr they go left or right. It had to do with what the, the uh, pagan priest tells them is going to be a good omen or bad omen. So the bad omen could sometimes be if they come back to us, that would be the bad omen. Or it could be a good omen, just depending. And from that the word shimal was derived and which refers to the left and yamin which is right refers to the right but the when when you mash'ama and maymana if you want a more accurate translation you would say the people who are in good standing and the people in bad standing rather than people on right or people on the left okay so there are those who are in the, the, the good standing and those who are in bad standing. وَالسَّابِقُونَ السَّابِقُونَ This is now verse 10. And the Sabiqun, the, the uh, Muhammad Asad translates it as the foremost, or the study Quran also translates it as the foremost. Okay. وَالسَّابِقُونَ السَّابِقُونَ أُولَٰئِكَ الْمُقَرَّبُونَ so the three groups, the Maymana, the Mash'ama, and the third group is a Sabiqun. 
and السابقون are المقربون so they are the closest to Allah if you will they're the elite and what Surah Al-Waqa'ah will tell us is that of the elite there are a large not the most of the category of the elite are most of them are going to be among of the awwalun which for now let's just understand it as the early generations and some of the later generations and akharin And we'll, we'll come back to this. As to the main mana, the people on the main mana, it will be many from earlier generations and many from later generations. And it doesn't say anything about the composition of the mashama. And this is, we start getting to the heart of Surah Al-Waqa'ah. So, First, Al-Muqarrabun, the foremost who are Muqarrabun, who are closest to Allah, who will be described as having the elite status in the hereafter. And of course, that begs the question of who are they? And... How, if it's possible to, or how is it possible to join that elite group of who are particularly close to Allah and who have a special status in the hereafter that is distinctive? Um, and of course, the what you run into immediately is this a historical is this saying basically as a hadith of the prophet or a hadith attributed to the prophet that says that the best century was my century and then the one after it and then the one after it and in other words with the passage of time each century is worse than the one before and does this mean that it's really most of the those who have that high status in Jannah are those closest to the time of the Prophet and then as time goes by fewer and fewer people will attain that status. Most Muslims that's precisely the idea that they grow up with is that and this is what most uh, what most Muslims would have been exposed to in Islamic centers and so on is that um, you know it's it just a matter of things as with the passage of time things get worse and so your chances of joining that elite 
with each century is lower and lower and lower until you get to the final centuries. Okay. Um, however, this runs into counter traditions that we should talk about. So first, I want to, to introduce the, the, an important hadith. This one reported from Aisha. She said that the Prophet ﷺ said, أَتَدْرُونَ مَنِ الصَّابِقُونَ قَالَ الَّذِينَ إِذَا أُعْطُوا الْحَقَّ بِلُوهَ وَإِذَا سُؤِلُوا بَذَلُوهَ وَحَكَمُوا النَّاسِ كَحُكْمِهِمْ لِأَنفُسِهِمْ So, in this tradition, the Prophet ﷺ says, do you know who are those foremost that the Qur'an is talking about? And then he explains and he says, they are people who adhere to rights and they adhere to the truth. If they hear the truth, they admit it and accept it. They're, they're upright when it comes to the truth. And at the same time, if when it comes to the rights of others, they are quick to satisfy the rights of others. So if there is a demand upon them that fulfill the rights of others, they are quick to discharge it. And if they, the way they um, carry themselves towards people, whether that carrying yourself is a, involves a judgment or involves a, a position of responsibility or resp involves being a judge, for instance, or involves being a ruler, Whatever it is in dealing with other people, they treat other human beings as they would treat what, what they would want for themselves. So, the golden rule, they treat others like they want, would want to be treated. Now, notice here, sabiqun are defined according to moral criteria not a chronological criteria, but a moral criteria. They are truthful people, they are righteous people, they are people that do not take what is not rightfully theirs, and they are people that treat others like they would want to be treated. Now, Some other traditions say that Asabiqun are are people who are al Musariuna fil Khairat, who excel in goodness, in doing good. They are always ahead of the curve when it comes to 
the performance of goodness in service, in other words. So that seems to, these types of traditions, and there are many of them, that define a sabiqun by moral criteria and not a chronology, would leave it at least theoretically, abstractly open that anyone from any period can be among the foremost. But it we, we doesn't stop here because the the same time that we have the hadith that says the best century is my century and then each century is worse, we have hadith that says مثل أمتي مثل المطر لا يد لا يدرى أوله خير أم آخره that my ummah is like rainfall whether the beginning of this ummah the start of this ummah the earlier periods of this ummah is better or the last centuries of this ummah are better is not known. And la yudra could mean that it's not decided yet by Allah, or it could mean that it is decided, but we just don't know. Hadiths like this are these hadiths that talk about um, that it is not necessarily the case that the first centuries are the best and the last centuries are the worst. Leave the matter open. But there are other ahadiths that also talk about those who, um, and it's again, it's uh, reported from Aisha, did I write it? Um, that talk about that the moral, um, how do I put it? Um, that at the end of times, so uh, maybe I. Maybe I'll be able to remember it if I read. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. I'll paraphrase the hadith because I, I can't um, remember exactly the wording of it. But that the Prophet tells his companions that there will come a time that the good deeds of a Muslim is worth 70 or 100 times what you do. And they asked the Prophet why is that? And he, the Prophet says that's because in their time the performance of good deeds will be much harder. The, you have awan, you have compatriots that help you to perform, to do good deeds. 
But those people who will be on the right path at their time, they will be, they will have a far greater challenge. And so they are rewarded 70 times in some versions, 100 times more, some versions for the same deed that you do. Ibn Ajiba in um, it says, uh, for instance, المقربون في آخر الزمان أعظم رتبة وأوسع علم وتحقيقة لأنهم نهضوا في زمان الغفلة وجدوا في زمان الفترة. What he's saying is that those that come at the end of times and are on the righteous path, on the Islamic path, are of higher moral value or are closer in, in, in worth than people who would come at the beginning of times because of how difficult it is will, it will be for them to go against the current. And he uses Zaman al-Ghafla and Zaman al-Fatra and these are terms of art, the, the, the periods where, basically periods where, um, of moral decay and for those people. So we go back again to then when the Quran says that it will be thulla min al-awwaleen wa qalilun min al-akhareen. Is it saying that most of the foremost, those who are close to Allah, most in terms of percentage-wise, are people of earlier generations? And this is, of course, doesn't have, has nothing to do with the place of the Sahaba, because the Sahaba are the Sahaba, and the Ali Bayt are the Ali Bayt. But we're talking about beyond Ali Bayt and beyond the Sahaba. Um, here, an awwal wal akhar doesn't necessarily have a chronological meaning. But could simply mean that they are most of those who will be in a sufuf al-ula. So Ibn Arabi, for instance, says, الأولين يعني المحبوبين الذين هم أهل الصف الأول من صفوف الأرواح are those who stand closest to Allah in the hereafter or is an indication of these are the ones that are going to so in other words in the hereafter those who stand closer to Allah are the ones who are going to be most of who occupy that space of the foremost as sabiqun now why am i emphasizing this so much because of the shift in your psychology that surah al-waqi'ah requires we 
often care about our place in the class system that the world creates. Are you high class? Are you high middle class? Are you middle class? Are you low class? And it bothers us if, or we, we, we aspire to improve our class standing. And that's something that is very common to worldly life. If you are high middle high class or high middle class, you want to remain that way and you don't want to slip down. And if you are low middle class, you hope to become middle class and then maybe even become high middle class. If you're high middle class, you might aspire to become high class. And we often think in terms of the way we organize our social lives um, is very much in, you know, how we price accommodations, how we price where we live, how we price what we drive, what we wear. It, it all relates to that class system. But we don't think very much about our rank in the hereafter. And that's the intellectual shift the Surat al-Waqa' wants from me. And psychological shift. Because then you would think, well, I want to be among al-awwaleen. I want to be among those who are standing in the first lines, the closest man. And the closer I am, the more I know that I am guaranteed to be among as-sabiqun, the foremost. How many gradations among the foremost before you get to ashabul yameen? If you, if we might use that expression, the the, the middle class in the hereafter, and among, and what type of gradations exist among ashabul yameen? You know those who barely made it, and if you remember, we've talked about not just, but those who end up. It's a they're really on the edge. They could either be among the ashabul mashama or ashabul maimana. But if a human being lives this world saying, "Well, I want to be. I want not just. I'm not just working to to secure a a." A, a place in Jannah, but I am working to actually be among the highest standing I can achieve. It would produce a reorientation, the type of reorientation that Sufi Askhtafasir often talk about, but they talk about by understanding a lot of the language metaphorically. And I don't even think that you need to understand the language metaphorically to, for Surah Al-Waqa'ah to have that effect on you. Okay. We'll come back to this because Surah Al-Waqa'ah itself comes back to it. Okay, so first, Al-Muqarrabun, um, 
and we've encountered this before in our tafsir of Surah Al-Rahman, where there is a description. Ala Surah Al-Mawduna, Muttaki'ina Alayha Muttaqabileen, Yatufu Alayhim Wuldanun Mukhalladun, Biakwabin Wa Abariq, Wakasin Min Ma'in, La Yusaddaun Anha, Wala Yunzifun, Wafakihatin Mimma Yatakhayarun, Wala Hmitayrin Mimma Yashtahun, وحور عين كأمثال اللؤلؤ المكنون جزاء بما كانوا يعملون لا يسمعون فيها لغوة ولا تأثيما إلا قيل سلاما سلاما So first as to السابقون the description of their hereafter is up to verse 26 and as we saw in سورة الرحمن Traditional tafsir often read the rewards in the hereafter very literally. So if it says lahmutayr, then it's a meat of of a of a bird, and in fact you will find a hadith that say something like, in the hereafter in Jannah, uh, if someone looks at a bird and wants to eat it, it falls in, you know, in their lap, roasted. So, you know, it becomes very visceral and very... And as we saw in Surah Al-Rahman, however, Sufi in the Sufi tradition, universally, um, there is a great reliance on the hadith of the Prophet that has been so widely reported that in the hereafter, the rewards that Allah has will be مَا لَا عَيْنٌ رَأَتْ وَلَا أُذْنٌ سَمِعَتْ that it will be something that people have never seen before and have never heard before and has never smelled before. So in the Sufi tradition is the insistence that Allah uses these expressions to appeal to the human senses, but all these descriptions are understood metaphorically. And so, and 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 I'll, I'll get more specific in, in in a second. But and in the Sufi Sufi S tradition, the metaphors often has to do with um, illumination, knowledge, understanding. Um, so and, and every expression that describes what appears to be a material enjoyment in fact stands for a symbolic construct about your spiritual attainment and your intellectual attainment and your enlightenment. Okay. And I'm going to take a few examples because I've already done quite a bit of this in Surah Al-Rahman, but here again, you know, instead of, we, we don't want to pass the opportunity 
to understand the Quran better or understand the, the interpretive tradition as well. So first, notice in 17, يَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمْ وُلْدَانٌ مُخَلَّدُونَ So the study Quran translates this as immortal youth wait upon them. So there are wildan are youth, mukhalladun are immortal, yatufu, now yatufu is very interesting because yatufu doesn't necessarily mean to wait on them, but it means that they float around. As a figure of speech, the traditional tafsir say, well, yatufu is often used when there are servants waiting on you. So we can say yatufu then means waiting on you. Now, in Muhammad Asad, if I remember correctly, oh, he, he says immortal youth will wait upon them as well. Okay. So he, did, he didn't um, deviate on this. Okay. So, but then... Um, let's take Tafsir ibn Arabi as an example on this. Yeah. So he says, first I'm just going to read the Arabic and then I'm going to uh, paraphrase. Okay. Mutaqabilin mutasawiyin fi rutab la hijab baynahum asla fi ayn al-wahda li tahakkukihim bil-zat wa takhayurihim fi al-zuhur bi-ayy sifa min al-sifat sha'u bi-jam'ihim al-mahabba al-zatiyya la yahtajibuna bil-sifat an al-zat wala bil-zat an al-sifat يطوف عليهم ولدان مخلدون تخدمهم قواهم الروحانية الدائمة بدولة ذواتهم أو الأحداث المستعدون من أهل الإرادة المتصلون بهم بفرط الإرادة كما قال بإيمان الحقنا بهم ذريتهم أو الملكوت السماوية. So and this is um, this understanding, which I'll preface in a second, is is more or less. I mean, Ibn Arabi might might be a bit more complex than most, but it's still the same idea that the wildan mukhalladun is not a youth that are a like um, servants or um, that f either float around uh, or the like, but rather that that their spiritual essence is what will become the wildan mukhalladun is that there's what they will encounter and this is very common in in this in in the sufi tradition that you encounter yourself and you come to see the truth of yourself and what you will encounter is the 
will then here is the, 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 your true essence in its purest and strongest form. And what you get from this essence depends on your purification in understanding that that of Allah, the, 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 the essence of Allah, and understanding the sifat of Allah, understanding the attributes of Allah. The closer you are in your earthly life in embodying the attributes of the divine, the more you embody the attributes of the divine, the closer you are to understanding the that of the divine, the, the truth of the divine. And the closer you are to understanding the truth of the divine, the more supernal and divine-like your essence. So whether meeting your essence is experience of just pure elevation of the highest form, or whether there is improvement, things that you can still work on. In Ibn Arabi thought, and the thought of a lot of Sufis, is that part of the joy of the hereafter is to know the ways that you could come closer to Allah in the hereafter. And that all the expressions you have about or all these expressions about material things connote your relationship to illumination and knowledge. Okay. So, in the Quran, if you notice, when it says, يَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْدَانُ الْمُخَلَّدُونَ بِأَكْوَابٍ وَأَبَارِيقُ وَكَأْسٍ مِنْ مَعِينٍ In traditional tafsir, say the wildan, the, the, youth, the immortal youth, are going around carrying jugs of wine, serving. In the Sufi tradition, jugs of wine are meaningless. Rather, what these projections of the self will be carrying and pouring are illuminations of the self. So the read the ka'sim min ma'in, that the ka's is, is, the, is the overflow of knowledge or the flowing of knowledge that you are receiving, uh, that is your intoxication because the idea of illumination, uh, illumination as an intoxicant or the intoxications of illuminations is again very powerful in the Sufi's tradition. Okay, now we run into a similar issue when we come to وَحُورٍ عِينٍ كَأَمْثَالِ لُؤْلُؤٍ مَكْنُونَ Now you notice so study Quran, this is uh, 22. 
and study Quran says, and there shall be wide-eyed maidens, the likeness of concealed perils. This is very traditional of traditional tefasirs. Hur'in, uh, hur are the uh, eyes that are wide, that the whiteness of the eye is apparent, which was taken as a sign of beauty among um, Arabs at that time. And that they are so beautiful that they are like perils, which again was taken as a sign of beauty. In, in the study Quran, let's see what he does with it. Uh, what, what's this again? With them, so he says, with them will be their companions pure, most beautiful of eye, like unto perils still hidden in their shells. shells. The Ahmad Asad's tafsir is a bit different than the study Quran in this point because what he understands as um, companions pure, most beautiful of eye, that these companions are basically their wives or their husbands in earthly life. And if I remember correctly, I think he says that in the footnote, that, that the, the, your companion in the way you're going to see your companion in the hereafter, the husband or wife, the, um, it, you'll see them as most beautiful. Um, okay. Now, but I want to pause with this expression a little bit because hur could mean wide. It comes from the word hawar. Hawar is wideness or instinctiveness. But remember that it has another meaning, and that is something that is pure. And so that is why the disciples of Christ in the Quran are known as al-hawariyun, the pure ones. It's the same word, it's the same origin. So, when you say Hur'in, another very plausible translation of that are pure companions or companions that are um, morally, ethically upright. I think misogyny took Hur'in and insisted on sexualizing it. But the language itself, there's nothing imperative in the language. That in the same way, there was a, a modern scholar who wanted to um, address the issue of homosexuality. So he said, so he 
wrote a book that was very controversial uh, and said that Wuldan Mukhalladun means that there, these will be sexual partners for homosexuals. And he, I guess he meant men because he was saying that God is going to reward homosexuals who maintain their chastity in the hereafter by giving them sexual partners who are young men. And again, it's, it's projecting very earthly desires upon the Qur'an in a way that it, 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 I don't think is justified. I mean, there's, there's nothing that in Wuldan Mukhalladun that means that this is, these will be your, you know, because there's nothing that says that the Wuldan Mukhalladun is limited to homosexual, homosexuals in the hereafter. Uh, immortal youth. It just says, uh, and there's nothing that, that in fact would, that would make us understand Wuldan uh, as in, in any sexualized fashion. But the same can be said uh, with Hura'in um, in this context. Um, so the other thing the Sufi-esque tradition, again, with the expression Hur'ain, does not understand that as wide-eyed maidens, but a typical um, way of, of, of interpreting this in the Sufi tradition says, مِنْ تَجَلِّيَاتِ الصِّفَاتِ وَمُجَرَّدَاتِ الْجَبَرُوتِ So, Hura'in basically then becomes tied to al-Wuldan al-Mukhalladun. And they have a whole discussion that whether al-Hura'in ma'atuf ala wuldan al-Mukhalladun. What's atuf in English? Conjunction. Is it? What did you say? Conjunction. You said conjunction? Yeah, conjoined. Like. Or a'id ala. Like whether basically the the Wuldan Mukhalladun, the the Hurain is is a yeah I guess conjoined with with the two, so the reason I say that is that in the Soviet tradition, Hurain when he says when they say min tajalliyat al sifat wa jabarut, it's uh, they understand it as again a reference to the projected self that you encounter. And that self, you will see the extent to which you have achieved closeness to the divine in the holographic self that you encounter in the hereafter. So they understand Hur'in as Hur means pure, and Ain is something that you are in, that you have a companionship with, but the, this is not a companion of a being created for you or the companionship of a being that came with you from Earth, 
but a companionship of the being that is you, in truth. Okay. So far, so good. I'm still, you're all with me still? It's, I know it's a bit challenging, but, you know, there's, uh, it, it, it's important. So we, we, you know, we can't jump in. We can't just skip it. Um, let's pause and pray us, and uh, we'll come back. So just so you, you get a sense so far, because um, I, I forgot to, to give this example, but when, um, when um, in Aya um, 21, it says, وَلَحْمُ طَيْرٍ مِمَّا يَشْتَهُونَ In Ibn Arabi, the, the way he, he reads this is, مِنْ لَطَائِفِ الْحِكَمُ وَدَقَائِقِ الْمَعَانِ الْمُقَوِّيَ لَهُمْ So although it says, وَلَحْمُ طَيْرٍ مِمَّا يَشْتَهُونَ the, the meat of birds, but in, in, in Ibn Arabi, like again, a lot of the Sufi's tradition, he says, So he, he interprets this as a metaphor for knowledge and meaning. So you are, the, in, your entire consumption, what, what, elevates you, what keeps you uh, nourished in the state is closeness to Allah and knowledge of the divine and how much knowledge you are, the more knowledge you are, you attain of divinity, the more alive and more uh, flourishing you are. Okay, so um, we get to, and we've encountered this before, um, where after which we've talked about, that and as we said that when the Quran, this is now in 25 and 26, that they hear no falsity and they hear no vain talk and they hear no offensive language. And their state of being, uh, and this isn't only in Surah Al-Waqa'ah where it says that their state of being, what they, what they consistently is the nature of their the discursive interactions is salam salam peace peace and th this this form of emphasis is 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 very meaningful and and unusual this repetition of the, the word twice um, but as we said before that this 
descriptions of heaven that come to its end and emphasize the moral engagement in heaven has always been the key for a lot of the metaphorical interpretations of descriptions of heaven, especially in Sufi traditions. Okay, so after the Quran talks about the Sabiqun, the foremost, what I've, what I've referred to as the elite. وَأَصْحَابُ الْيَمِينَ مَا أَصْحَابُ الْيَمِينَ So now it moves to a description of those who are the people of the Yameen, people who are in, in a good position, but they're not among the Sabiqun, I'm not among the elite. فِي صِدْرٍ مَخْضُودٍ وَطَلْحٍ مَنْضُودٍ وَظِلٍ مَمْدُودٍ وَمَاءٍ مَسْكُوبٍ وَفَاكِهَةٍ كَثِيرَةٍ لَا مَقْطُوعَةٍ وَلَا مَمْنُوعَةٍ this is so from 28 to 34 and the translation that you would get in the study Quran um, and the translation that you would get in in um, in all tafsirs is pretty much the traditional approach so that it will so it talks about that there will be thornless lot trees that uh, clustered plantains uh, extended shade gushing water abundant fruit um, and raised beds and this is more or less the, the traditional, uh, let's see how the, how Muhammad Asad, if, the, if he deviates from this at all. Um, so, the branches. Yeah, lot trees, acacias, flower clad, shade extended, waters gushing, um, fruit abounding, never failing and never out of reach. Okay, so this in, in the traditional tafsir, it's not a surprise that the description is very literal, that they are on couches, raised beds, that there is plenty of fruit, that there is, uh, whether it's lot trees or uh, acacia trees or banana trees, but there are uh, trees not, exactly like those on earth in that they are just a constant source of um, everything that you you find that, that you wish that would be pleasurable. But not surprisingly that in the Sufi's tradition these are not understood at all as literal expressions of physical things. But this would be rather representative. So let me go to okay. So for here, for instance, uh, um, so the, this is now uh, um, uh, the. Again, Ibn Arabi says this in the Futuhat, 
something very familiar, uh, similar. So whether this tafsir really belongs to Ibn Arabi or as most authorities say, Kashani um, or Kashani, uh, it's beside the point. But it's the point, the, I'm reading it from the tafsir <coughs> attributed to Ibn Arabi. So he says, وَمَا مَسْكُوبْ أَيْ عِلْمْ يَرْشَحْ عَلَيْهِمْ وَيُسْكَبْ مِنْ عَالَمُ الرُّوحِ وَإِنَّمَا سُكْبَ سَكْبًا وَلَمْ يُجَرَّ جَرَيَانًا لِقِلَّةْ عُدُومِ السَّعَدَاءِ بِالنِّسْبَةِ إِلَىٰ أَعْمَالِهِمْ إِذْ ثِقَلْ عُلُومِهِمْ الرَّوْحَانِيَّةِ مِنَ الْمَوَاجِيدِ وَالْمَعَارِفِ وَالتَّوْحِيدَاتِ وَالذَّوْقِيَاتِ وَإِنْ كَثُرَتْ عُلُومُهُمْ وفاكهة كثيرة من المدركات الجزئية والكلية اللذيذة كالمحسوسات والمخيلات والموهومات والمعاني الكلية القلبية لا مقطوعة لكونها غير متناهية ولا ممنوعة لكونها اختيارية كلما شاءوا أين شاء أين شاء وجدوها. So what he reads the references to trees and fruits and water. All again as symbolizing fruits of knowledge and illumination. Trees of that are symbolic for the tree of knowledge and what the tree of knowledge and illumination sprouts. And that the water that flows is a water of constant um, learning. And that because the people of Yemen are not as advanced as the people who are Sabiqun, overall, in the Sufi tradition, the people of Yemen, which, as I said, are sort of the middle class, the, are people whose deeds outperform their comprehension and their, the pureness of their soul. They're, they're, they're very decent people who do, did good things, but, and obeyed God and worshiped God and so on, but they have a long way to go in terms of learning. Is that what's sufficient? And so the, their journey in the path of illumination and knowledge um, in the half hereafter is a much longer path. And yet, again, their source of nourishment, their source of fulfillment, and their source of happiness is coming closer to the divine. That doesn't mean that they are guaranteed that they will progress as Ashab al-Yameen into a better class, but they have the potential of doing so depending on how far they want to go, even in the hereafter. So is the hereafter in the Sufi outlook often still a place where you can grow? Well, if you are among the 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 sabiqun al-awwalun that you are right at the forefront well the path that the, the the gap is much smaller than if you are among the yameen
And this methodology in understanding all the references of material things, and in, in and again, I've said this before, that in the Sufi orientation, Allah speaks in terms of material things to appeal to the, low, the, the lowest common denominator. But if in fact you reach the hereafter and what you care about is what you're going to eat and what you drink and what you're going to have sex with, that means that your level of comprehension is very, let's put it, leaves a lot to be desired. And so the path that you are yet to go into, if you, if you have the willpower to journey in the hereafter is much longer than those who have at least a metaphorical understanding of these material pleasures. Um, and I mean, and you can, honestly, you can give the, the language of the, the, the details of what people like Ibn Arabi or even someone like Jilani who's not as, as um, abstract, you can spend many, many hours unpacking their interpretations and, and, um, and, and understanding the distinctions they make and the import of these distinctions in what they want you to understand and crave in your earthly life. Because the more you understand of these distinctions and you say, well, it, if for instance, you find yourself saying, well, yeah, I actually, in the hereafter, I do want to eat fruits and I do want to gorge on delicious meat. Then this is, you are precisely the type of person that would need to go through the education that people like Ibn Ajiba or Jilani or Ibn Arabi um, are talking about. Okay. So then we get to Let me first, this is um, 35. So in the study Quran first, 35 says, we truly, truly we brought them into being as a new creation. Then made for them versions, amorous peers, for the companions of right. And what their vajannahum abkara, this is what the, 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 the idea of versions, uruban atraba, which for urub atraba, the, this is what the study Quran translates as amorous peers. In Muhammad Asad, let's check him. He says, and, and with them will be their spouses raised high. For behold, we shall have brought them into being 
in a life renewed, having resur resurrected them as virgins, full of love, well-matched with those who have attained to righteousness. So you notice the key here is the expression Oroban Atraba. And Atrab are those who are your equals or your peers. Orob is where a lot of the discussion takes place between the range of traditional tefasir. But Orob can mean something that is well-matched to you, can mean something that you, you have a relationship of tranquility and repose with, and it could also mean something that is a source of tremendous love for you. So you notice that, and I'm, I'm not sure if, the, if, if this is what the study Quran, uh, study Quran has in mind, but at least Muhammad Asad, it's, it's clear, that the, the critical idea is that for the people who Ashabul Yameen, is that they are coupled with their partners if their partners um, uh, are make it to heaven, obviously. But they're coupled with their partners, and their partners are restored to youth and um, in their original pure state. And this, by the way, is ma whether male or female. So that, and this is again the traditional approach, that they are, they find love, companionship, and unlike life on earth, they are, they are in a state of repose and tranquility and serenity. So that there is a, 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 um, a harmony be between them. There is a hadith attributed to Umm Salama where the, she asked the Prophet about these verses and says a woman, and of course uh, this is very different than, uh, um, but a woman, in, uh, a, a woman in our time or one of us women um, will marry a husband or two or three or four and what she means by this is that women at that time it was very common for women to marry several husbands as they die or even perhaps divorce them but it was very common for a woman to outlive several husbands and that was the, the normal practice because women would marry men who are much older and and men generally uh, because of wars, because of travel, because of disease, they would tend to die. And so it was common for a woman to marry several men in her lifetime. And she said, which one of them would we then be coupled with in the hereafter? And he said, the one that you love the most. You know, 
I, I mentioned this hadith or this riwayah because uh, to demonstrate that it, it's both men and women. Because a lot of times when you, at least modern Muslims, when they learn this, this stuff, they, they, they're taught they're taught the material as if it only applies for men, but not the same for women. Now, of course, it's not going to surprise you that in um, the Sufi tradition, the understanding is very different. Oh, be, before I, I do that, I just remembered another thing about Lahm al-Tayr. You remember I read to you the, the quote from Ibn Arabi about Lahm al-Tayr, the, the meat of birds, right? And he says that the, this is basically knowledge. Um, Ibn Ajiba says something very interesting about Lahm al-Tayr, the meat of birds. So he said, وَلَحْمُ طَيْرِ مِنْ عُلُومِ الطَّرِيقَ وَالشَّرِيعَةِ مِمَّا يَشْتَهُونَ مِنْهَا That the Lahmu Tayr means is the knowledge of the path, the path to the Lord and illumination and Sharia. Um, it's similar, but the, the fact that he uses Sharia is rather interesting, that knowledge of Sharia is itself... Of course, Sharia could mean something very broad. Anyway, uh, okay, so let's go back to Arab Atrab. So, um, so it says, So he says, عجيبا نورانية مجردة عن المواد مطهرة عن الناس الطبائع والواس العناصر فجعلناهن أبكارا أي لم تتأثر بملامسة الأمور الطبيعية ومباشرة الطبيعيين الظاهرين من أهل العادة والمخالطين للمادة من النفوس أربى متحببة إليهم محبوبة لصفائها وحسن جوهرها ودوام اتصالها بهم أطراب لكونها في درجة واحدة متساوية المراتب أزلية الجواهر So you might think if you're not familiar with this language is that he's talking about a female Actually, he's not talking about a female at all. What he's saying is that what we create that you, your soul, will be created, reborn into something that is completely non-material unadulterated, uncorrupted by things like trauma, pain, hurt, uh, offenses. So you meet your soul in the hereafter with its level of attainments 
in piety and iman minus all the garbage inflicted upon it by whatever influenced you negatively. And so you, in that encounter, and so for, for Abkar for him, and for Sufi tradition generally, doesn't mean versions, but Abkar means unsullied, uncorrupted. And when you meet that soul, or you meet the embodiment, or, or the, 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 um, the, the manifestation of that soul, it is you start understanding yourself at a, certain, at a different level for the first time. You see yourself, you're in Jannah, so it's not something that's going to terrify you, but it's something that's actually going to comfort you. Because you see that, well, this is what I could have been, or this is my true self that I actually never got to fully know in my life on earth. And then you begin a new journey with that soul of, if you will, building a companionship with yourself, but on completely different, completely different terms. As, again, you make the decision whether you want to take that self and journey closer to Allah or remain where you are in a bliss, but static. Now, in Sufi poetry, um, there is a lot of times in if you read enough for instance of Shar ibn al Farid, um, there is and the, the the whole school of uh, of virginal love, by the way, that emerged in the Islamic tradition and virginal poetry grew out of this. It's sort of this mocking disdain and making fun of those who understand Quranic verses like this in a sexual fashion because they they the there was often the view that the the human body um Cannot so, for instance, one of the poems would say it's talking to the what it calls the Hashawiya, the the uh, people of tradition, and it tells them, um, you you say that um, that you will go with 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 your body to eat as you wish and to drink as you wish, and so does this also include that? What will you do with the food that will fill your stomach? Wouldn't you need to go to the bathroom? Do you, do you have, are you crazy enough to say that in heaven we were going to be doing, you know, go to the bathroom? He uses far more explicit terms. You get the picture. 
like you know, I, what's wrong with you people that you think that you, people are going to be doing this stuff in the year after? But if you say they're not going to do the stuff, then he's also saying, what if then what will happen to all the food you're eating? No. <laughs> that's that's the point of the poem. Um, okay, so where am I? Okay. So the ashab al-yamin thullatun min al-awwalin wa thullatun min al-akhirin. So notice here then. Thulla means many from those who are awaleen and many of those who are akhareen. So unlike the first group, it is not many and and from the awaleen and a few from al akhareen, but many and many. Okay. Then it moves on to wa ashabu shimal ma ashabu shimal. The third category and those are people in in trouble. في سموم وحميم وظل من يحموم لا بارد ولا كريم إنهم كانوا قبل ذلك مترفين وكانوا يصرون على الحنث العظيم وكانوا يقولون أئذا متنا وكنا ترابا وعظاما إنا لمبعوثون أو آباؤنا الأولون قل إن الأولين والآخرين لمجموعون إلى ميقات يوم معلوم so the the main thing to say about the description is of punishment here is the expression fi sumumin wa hamim wa dhulmi yahmum la barid wa la karim i think the, let's go to the Muhammad as a translation on this because he's closer to. Um, no, actually, yeah, he's. Um, yeah, so he says they will find in the midst of scorching winds and burning despair and the shadows of black smoke, shadows neither cooling nor soothing. For behold, in times gone by, they were wont to abandon themselves wholly to pursuit of pleasures, and would persist in heinous sinning, and would say, "What after we, what after we have died and become mere dust and bones, shall we forsooth be raised from the dead, and perhaps to our forebears of old?" Say, verily, those of olden times and those of later times will indeed be gathered together at an appointed time on a day known only to God. And then, verily, O you who have gone astray and called the truth a lie, you will indeed have a taste of the tree of deadly fruit, and will have to fill your bellies therewith, and will thereupon have to drink many a draught of burning despair, and drink it as the most insatiably thirsty camels drink. The the insatiably um, the the insatiable camels um is Fasharibuna Minha Sharbal Sharbal or Sharibuna Minha Shurbal Heem um Heem is an animal that is is a rabbit animal. 
the, the rabbit disease, where the animal feels an unquenchable thirst. So basically, you, you drink, but your thirst is never quenched. The only thing I want to say about um, um, this description is that in traditional tefasir, you will find there's an emphasis on the typical portrayals of hell as fire, heat, and the the um, um, so fi zumumi wa hamim is in and I bet that so the Quran would have, probably have this for you too. So emit scorching wind and boiling liquid, which is much closer to the traditional um, tefasir. tefasir. Um, understanding that fi sumumi wahamim more an issue of burning despair and is closer to what you would find in the Sufi traditions. Because in Sufi traditions, hell is a state of absolute misery. And the greatest misery is the loss of hope and the awareness that you confront the truth of the self with all its ugliness and the implications of all the pain or all the what your wrongful conduct cost the the full to see the full and um but they insist that in the same way that the, the fire of hell is something that we have no frame of reference for. That the, the, the agony and despair and, and pain of hellfire is just an abysmal, horrible state. But a lot, and, and, I'm, and I'm intentionally being brief here because, I mean, if it, it's, uh, I'll just give, because I know someone is going to say, you oh, know, don't rush, so it'll take just an example. Um, so, 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 okay. so, for instance, Ibn Arabi says, في سموم من الأهواء المردية والهيئات الفاسقة المؤذية وحميم من العلوم الباطلة والعقائد الفاسدة وظل من يحموم من هيئات النفوس المسودة بالصفات المظلمة والهيئات السود الرديئة لأن اليحموم دخان أسود بهيم. So what he's saying is, is that he's taking these the same words that you find in the study Quran saying um, uh, scorching wind and boiling liquid. But in the Sufi tradition, which Ibn Arabi is it, it, rather typical of, that what you are confronting 
العلوم الباطلة is false knowledge وعقائد فاسدة are corrupt beliefs والنفوس المسودة بالصفات المظلمة is to encounter the self with all its dark darkness and its immoral qualities um, and the the despair of in of seeing oneself the truth of oneself and its ugliness is the 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 real source of agony and drifting away or being away from the light of the divine is the absolute um, is is the ultimate in denial it's it, it's this is the point where the darkness craves light but if the light if if the darkness cannot has no access to the light the darkness consumes itself and you know as i said you you can you can teach an entire course on sufi interpretations of hell but as inshallah I'll, I'll come back to as i commented the entire surah and uh, I think it's not the, the critical issue. I mean, you could understand that either way, and you, you, you don't want to be in that class. Now, notice that the, that what the Quran says in Surah Al-Waqa'ah, that they would insist on Al-Himth Al-Azim, which they would insist on lying to themselves and living a life of lies that and they would the fact that they rejected the principle of accountability is what part of these the, the course of conduct or the course of actions that led them to being in this place. And then, um, okay. to just even get, to complete the picture, so when it says, فَشَارِبُونَ شَرْبَ um in the Sufi tradition, while in the in the in the traditional approach it says that you become like rabid animals who drink and can never be quenched and they're they're drinking something foul not something good they're not drinking water um, in the sufi tradition is that their 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 thirst is their need for everything from the divine sifat, the divine attributes that they refuse to accept in their life on earth. 
So they've refused to accept Rahmah, they've refused to accept Allah's mercy, they've refused to accept Allah's compassion, they refuse to believe in Allah's justice, they refuse to accept in Allah's mawadda or or rafa and and Allah's closeness, Allah, all of that. And that becomes a burning thirst that cannot be quenched in the hereafter. Okay. Okay. So now the Quran moves to this is sixty three. Oh, first, um, the first there is a a a a passage in transition. So. When Allah says, نَحْنُ قَدَّرْنَا بَيْنَكُمُ الْمَوْتَ وَمَا نَحْنُ بِمَصْبُقِينَ عَلَىٰ أَن نُبَدِّلَ أَمْثَالُكُمْ وَنُشِبْكُمْ فِي مَا لَا تَعْلَمُونَ That we've given you life and we've decreed death and if Allah would have willed, Allah could have created you into a very different state and as very different creatures. Then it gets to the famous verses أَفَرَأَيْتُمْ مَا تَحْرُثُونَ أَنْتُمْ تَزْرَعُونَهُ أَمْ نَحْنُ الزَّرْعُونَ لَوْ نَشَاءُ لَجْعَلْنَاهُ حُطَامًا فَظَلْتُمْ تَفَكَّهُونَ إِنَّا لَمُغْرَمُونَ بَلْ نَحْنُ الْمَحْرُومُونَ أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ الْمَاءَ الَّذِي تَشْرُبُونَ أَنْتُمْ أَنْزَلْتُمُوهُ مِنَ الْمُزْنِ أَمْ نَحْنُ الْمُنْزِلُونَ لَوْ نَشَاءُ لَجْعَلْنَاهُ أُجَاجًا فَلَوْلَا تشكرون أفرأيتم النار التي تورون أنتم أنشأتم شجرتها أم نحن المنشئون نحن جعلناها تذكرة ومتاعا للمكوين فسبح باسم ربك العظيم So this is it starts from 63 up to 74 and it starts it flags two elements and fire. I just want to make sure I don't forget anything. Um, uh, I did forget one small thing, but and if you look at um, before we, uh, I'm come, I'm gonna come back to this. But if you look at forty-three, again, uh, the note that that the I said that literally it means. Uh, dark smoke or dark clouds um, in in the Sufi tradition there there is an emphasis that this that it emphasizes that the state of darkness obscures vision and understanding 
that, that's just a, a, a minor point. Okay, so let's go back now to 63 onwards. So, traditionally, the, the meaning is, is quite clear, that do you see what you plant um, it is God that sends the water that irrigates these plants and if God would have willed then whatever you plant would not grow would become hotam, would become dried up and, and, and uh, foul uh, and then you would find yourself at a complete loss. So, but the, the go back that two critical elements that Allah reminds human beings of. Water as a source of growth and as the secret of life and fire or As I think, if I remember correctly, Muhammad Asad says this, that all fire relies on the, on even fossil fuel, on the, a, a, a process where God's vegetation what used to be plants fossilize and become whether even coal or oil um oil that was consumed by plant eating animals and these then die and then that 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 um these plants become the the, the material that becomes oil that becomes coal uh that both water is what made life possible. And it is water that made possible the material that you burn for a source of, of energy. And energy is what you need as a secret for your existence on Earth. So Allah comes to the crux of the matter because if you say, well, you know, you can read this simply as Allah saying, well, you know, ponder the plants and, and how reliant on you, you are. But as uh, Arazi points out, for instance, that it is, in fact, Allah is telling you reflect upon the cycle itself. Water is the reason that you have vegetation vegetation is the reason that you have the fossil fuel that enables you to burn things and fire is the way that you attain energy whether different forms of fire you know whether you use fire to heat up water to use the vapor or whether you um, use fire directly but ultimately, it is that cycle. And that how easy it is for the entire cycle 
not to have functioned and not to have worked. Let me check if in fact I'm remembering this correctly that Muhammad Asad picked this up from, um, because he might, okay, so he says, it's three, a metronome pointing to the plant origin, direct or indirect, of almost all the known fuels, including mineral fuels like coal, which is but petrified wood, or petroleum, which is a liquefied residue of plant-nourished organisms buried in the earth for millions of years. So, yeah, he did pick, pick it up. And that's, that's a, an, an important thing to know, that it is, I mean, and it is sort of like the, the things that, for that time, it is hard to imagine that a human mind would have simply pointed out to that relationship. It's quite remarkable. Okay. But there's a further point that would say that about fire. This is now verse 74. Al-Mukwiyin or Al-Mukwi are people who are um, are wayfarers, travelers. So what the, the ayat are saying is that we've made fire and we've made it as a source of um, uh, as a, a reminder to Skira and, and always as a way of reflecting upon Allah's gifts and as a necessary service to wafers. But there is um, there is a symbolic meaning to this that I think that if you just anar is fire is a source of light and so it says turun means that you light up as a source of light. Do you, are you the ones that know the secret of fire? Now, what fire is? And this is a very interesting point to me because it's, for, in, for a while, I was actually very interested in what fire is. And I, after taking a couple of uh, science courses when I was an undergraduate, I started reading, wanting to understand what fire is. And I found it fascinating that actually we don't know what fire is. It, it's a, yes, it's something that a heating process 
a, a fast movement of molecules, um, release of energy, change in form, all of that. But what is fire is something of a puzzle, like gravity, the nature of gravity, or the, the truth of gravity, um, or even electricity. You know, go search, try, do, do your own research, try to find out, what, you know, an explanation of what. It, it, and so actually, and philosophers of science love to write about this, you know, what is electricity, what is fire, what is gravity. Um, if you're interested in philosophy of science, you, you can read some very fascinating discussions about this. But at least for me, after having, you know, read whatever I could put my hand on, ultimately I, I came out with the conclusion that no one really knows. Um, there's a lot of philosophy, but a lot of philosophy is very intelligent phrasing of language to say we don't know. And, um, you know, darn if we'll ever figure it out. So, all right. So, but illumination and when Allah reminds us that fire is, is a source of light and, and says, which is a fascinating expression. Do, do, you, do you, literally, have you, did, um, let's see, um, study Quran, which is, um, this is 72. Um, it says, yeah, is it you who brought into being the tree thereof, or is it we who bring into being? The tree thereof, that's very literal. But what does that mean? And even in, in Arabic, what does it mean to say, are you the ones who created the tree of fire? Well, what it means is, are you the one that created the essence of fire? And Sha'atul Shajarata means the, the, the reality of fire, the essence of fire. And the answer is, well, we can't be the ones because we don't know what it is. We know how to generate it or to, to trigger it, but what is it like gravity and electricity? We don't know. Or like even, you know, anyway, philosophy of science gets into some very interesting stuff. Anyway, so we are the ones who made it, it as kira, Now, al-mukuyin could mean, the literal meaning of it, that it is a reminder and a benefit to the wayfarer. But mukuyin doesn't necessarily have to mean wayfarer. It could also mean the lost. And if it means the lost, then it is, then you can read these same verses to be saying that fire is the source of light and light is what is both the reminder and
and the um, and the what the metal the 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 what those who are lost need the most. So I mean, if if you are if your life, if you feel lost in your life, then what would you need from Allah the most? It's the light of guidance. And then these verses would have a further meaning um, than the, the literal, traditional meaning that they have. Okay. And so then it would make, so then it concludes with فَسَبِّحْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الْعَظِيمِ which we've talked about the, the expression of التسبيح والتنزيه that recognizing that it is only that and this is again goes back to the whole pointing to the secret of life and the cycle between fire and between water and growth and fire when Allah concludes something or begins something Allah is saying this is something that only God would be capable of doing and so when you see that it's an invitation to go back and to read the text carefully to try to understand what is it that Allah is trying to say notice that this can only come from uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala okay فَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِمُوَاقِعِ النُّجُومِ وَإِنَّهُ لَقَسَمٌ لَوْ تَعْلَمُونَ عَظِيمٌ إِنَّهُ لَقُرْآنٌ كَرِيمٌ فِي كِتَابٍ مَكْنُونٌ لَا يَمَسَّهُ إِلَّا الْمُطَهَّرُونَ So notice 75 to 79. فَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِمُوَاقِعِ النُّجُومِ Let's make sure I didn't forget anything. Normally when we see this, this is um, 75 that normally then Allah is saying I I'm swearing or I am Allah is swearing by the Mawaqa in the 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 places of stars and when Allah says وَإِنَّهُ لَقَصَمٌ لَوْ تَعْلَمُونَ عَظِيمٌ and this indeed is a grave oath now it is possible that Allah swears by something that at the time people didn't couldn't have conceived why what is this great mystery in Allah swearing by this now, read from a modern eye, it is possible that Allah is swearing by the by the illusion by the fact that the place of stars is often an itself an illusion, because what we see is the light of stars that is reaching us from great distances, 
what we think is an existing star could have been actually something that doesn't exist anymore because what was reaching us is a light. And, of course, that's a very moderate understanding because but when you see Allah saying, that, that if, you, if only you knew this is indeed a great oath, it's something that attracts your attention. Well, okay, so what am I missing here? And in our modern understandings of the, the, the travel of light and faraway um, 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 bodies like stars and so on, it, it takes a completely different meaning. Interestingly, in the traditional tafsir, they understood as not a reference to stars at all, but as a reference to the revelation of the Quran. And it's very fascinating because normally that type of metaphorical interpretation you would find in Sufi traditions. But no, this was in traditional tafsir. This is one time, and I think there's two reasons for it. Because it says, So they thought, well, okay, so swear by the Mawaka, the place of stars, says, if only you knew the value of this oath, or the importance of this oath, or, or how meaningful this oath is. And then, right after that, the, says, it is a Qur noble Qur'an, it is a Qur'an Kareem. So, is it the oath in order to say that this is a Qur'an Kareem, or is the Qur'an Kareem is the object of the oath. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So, traditional tafsir said, well, we don't know why Allah would say, if only you knew the importance of this oath. That doesn't make sense unless, unless the nujum that Allah is referring to, and they here resorted to a very obscure definition of Nujum. Nujum could be stars, but Nujum could be also whatever comes down in installments. So, but then it required two things, that they read Nujum as something that comes down in installments, and Mawaka, Mawaka means positions or place of, to Mawaka to, to be read as if only you knew how the context or the circumstances and under which we reveal the Quran in installments. This indeed is a great oath, if only you knew. This is a noble Quran. So that's the way they, they interpreted it, to make sense of it. And I think that when you read the traditional discussions, they often focus on this expression if only you knew the place of this oath. When I read it with, from your 
you know, my modern mind, if my mind is modern, you know, because I don't know, compared to my kids, my pro I mean, my mind is archaic. But w then the oath about the place of stars and Allah challenging us by saying, you don't know the significance of this oath. And then the oath would be, the object of this oath is to say that this is, I swear by the place of stars, which is something that you don't quite understand, and we know now why we don't really understand it, because what we see in the sky is not the, the real thing. Um, this is verily a noble Quran. So, do everyone understand? Okay. Okay. في كتاب مكنون in كتاب مكنون is um, comes from the equivalent or the same as the uh, the preserved tablets or لوح المحفوظ this is 78 في كتاب مكنون um, well guarded divine writ um, okay. Because there is a juristic debate about this, let's let's pray Maghrib and then um, continue with that. With starting with seventy-nine. rahim Let's start. لا يمسوه إلا المطهرون There is the, the famous jurisprudential debate about this this ayah that it, it can only be touched by the purified um, Does purified mean that those who are not on, in, in Janaba mean an impure state uh, or does it also include only those who have wudu? And that's a, 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 um, a jurisprudential debate. I mean, uh, I personally um, go against my the, the usual school that I follow on these matters is the Shafi'i school, and, and the Shafi'i school says wudu is necessary Personally, I, I don't think the Shafi'is are right on this point. But that jurisprudential debate is, you know, whether, you know, whichever you follow, it, is, it, there's evidence to support each position. Um, but um, what uh, Ghazali in his Ihya Alumuddin and um, says something that you also read in Ibn Qayyim Juzay uh, and, um, and also in Jilani that La Musul al Mutaharun doesn't just mean that it should not be touched except by those who are either in a pure, in pure, in a pure state, 
or pure state plus voodoo but it also means that a mess here can have a further meaning that it cannot only be understood by those who are pure of heart. And that's what Ghazali and Jilani and Nqayyim says that for the Quran to open up to you, um, you need to purify yourself of the burdens of the ego as much as possible. And uh, the more you purify yourself of the burdens of the ego, you'll find the, the Quran a companion to you and a close ally in, in all affairs of life. Now it will, it will be as a living revelation in your existence. Okay, so then when we go to 81, if you have the hadith, Antum Mudhinun, Watashaluna, Rizkakum, and Nakum to Kadzibun, Watashaluna, Rizkakum, and Nakum to Kadzibun. This is very interesting. This is 82. Let's see how the um, study Quran says. And make the denial thereof your provision. Which is again very literal. The study Quran uh, says, um, and make it your daily bread as it were to call the truth a lie. The Muhammad Asad's translation is much closer. That Many people enter into a relationship where as the even if, and this is the, the, the best that I've read on this, is that even if they say we believe or we are Muslim, when it comes to feeling comfortable with acknowledging that whether it is the water that is the secret of existence or energy that is the, the necessary element for human life and activity and movement or indeed whether it is you risk whatever you earn, whatever blessings you attain, that they find in themselves a discomfort or a, a resistance to accepting that this is all from Allah and that it is not in fact, um, either without, it, it, that it is not in fact all happenstance or coincidental, or that to, to even if they theoretically acknowledge 
that yes, you know, we thank give thanks to Allah, but in their actual attitudes, Allah is not present as close to them in their in the way they relate to meaning and construct meaning in their life. And that it is as if as if being in a state of denial and being in a state of takzeeb is necessary for them to cope or to exist and continue thriving in life. And this is connected to what comes after. So notice then what the Quran says. So then it says, فَلَوْلَا إِذَا بَلَغَتُ الْحُلْقُونَ وَأَنْتُمْ حِينَ إِسْتَنْظُرُونَ وَنَحْنُ أَقْرَبُ إِلَيْهِ مِنْكُمْ وَلَكِنْ لَا تُبْصِرُونَ فَلَوْلَا إِنْ كُنْتُمْ غَيْرُ مَدِينِينَ كُنْتُمْ غَيْرَ مَدِينِينَ تَرْجِعُونَهَا إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ فَأَمَّا تَرْجِعُونَهَا إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ So then Allah reminds you of something that is rather obvious but at the same time it strikes you. So how about when death comes and it reaches the point of no return? And at that point, you don't realize this. We are indeed so close to you at this point, although you do not perceive it to be so. So at that point, that a human being is experiencing the throes of death, the, the, the point of no return, and then Allah poses this, this, if, would you be able to bring this life back if you indeed, if, if your attitude of self-sufficiency or your attitude of non-dependence on law, in the same way that you do not believe that Allah is so close to you, and remember Allah says that it's, Allah is closer to you than your jugular your vein, but even at that point of death when you don't perceive either those who die or yourself in that state, when it comes, you don't realize that you are, Allah is closer to you than anything else. Would you be able to bring that life back? It is, again, that, that bringing you to, it is like saying, Again, speaking in, in, in what it would be typically more Sufi terms, is there are veils, and the veils prevent you from seeing the truth of, in the same way that you don't see the, the real truth in water flowing and fire igniting and 
how personal and well and, and meticulously calculated all of this is. Similarly, you don't see that in everything that you earn and everything that you consume, Allah is meticulously involved in all your affairs. Nothing is happenstance. Nothing is just simply coincidental. Nothing is by luck. At what point does that veil is about, it will be removed. It's a point for, unfortunately for so many, it's that point of no return, the point when they confront death and there is no way of turning back, of somehow reversing and saying, well, I'm gonna stay longer. And at that point, you see things for the truth that you've lived ignoring or denying. Um, so, Ghazali comments on this in his Ahiyya and he says the takzeeb that Allah speaks about in 82. Um, he says that there are many gradations of takzeeb. And so when you earn something and you forget to say Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen or Allahumma dimha ni'ma that may Allah Alhamdulillah Allah continue your blessings that this is one level of takzeeb. Of course another level of takzeeb is to say I don't believe in Allah altogether. Or to say as there's a hadith the, uh, it's it's of suspect uh, um, authenticity, but I mean the 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 point, the moral lesson remains the same. Is that the prophet? The prophet is reported to have said that don't say I planted something, but say I sowed something. Meaning because it's it's acknowledge the fact that it's not you who actually makes the plant grow, but that you reap the benefit of even you know effort you you've put in it is still Allah's laws Allah's will that makes something grow something ignite something move something remain static something die something born um, so uh, so the Ghazali uh, says that you know from from forgetting to say uh, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen to um, speaking in terms of, you know, I've earned, I've made, I've worked, I've accomplished to, um, to the other extreme of saying, you know, God doesn't exist and God has no role to play. All of these are form, are levels of taqzeeb. Okay. So, and after that point of death, Surah Al-Waqi'ah returns again to the beginning of the Surah and speaks about the three categories again. فَأَمَّا إِنْ كَانَ مِنَ الْمُقَرَّبِينَ فَرَوْحٌ وَرَيْحَانٌ وَجَنَّاتُ نَعِينَ So, if they are of that first category, 
which at the beginning of the surah it referred to as a sabiqun and as we said a sabiqun means those who are particularly close al muqarrabun um let's see how it translated so this is 89 farawhun wa rayhan happiness awaits them and inner fulfillment and the gardens of bliss or gardens of bliss that's yeah uh farawh is is um a state of elevation and in fulfillment of spirit Raihan, which um, Muhammad Asad translates um, inner fulfillment, Raihan is, it's interesting because Raihan literally means the fragrance existing surrounded or being surrounded by beautiful fragrance but it is usually meant figuratively to mean being in a state of ultimate happiness and utter tranquility like feeling utterly fulfilled um and and uh, that that's clear heaven in so, and if they are of the people of Yamin, then they have salam. So it is again the language is not as ecstatic for as for the first category, but still they they their state is a state of salam. As to, but if they are the third category, and notice that Allah also, with the first category, Allah says a lot from an awaleen, and we said, we said, we discussed what the debate about an awaleen is. That, and a small group of the akhirin, either later or the, um, the the back uh, back rows, if you will, and when it comes to ashab al yamin, it says a lot from the beginning and a lot from the end, but Allah doesn't tell us what the portions are when it comes to the third category. It doesn't say a lot from the beginners or a lot from the end, or it leaves it open. Um, You can draw your own conclusions as to why that is, but it's it's noteworthy. Okay, فَأَمَّا إِنْ كَانَ مِنَ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ فَنُظْرٌ مِنْ حَمِيمٌ وَتَصْلِيَةُ جَحِيمٌ As to the third category, let's see how it translates it. Uh, this is... Yeah, so, yeah, you go... So, 
فرزون من حميم حميم could be read uh, could be could means literally as flames or could mean a state of excruciating despair وتصليه جحيم hell fire ان هذا لهو حق اليقين this is the absolute certainty فسبح باسم ربك العظيم to exalt the name of your Lord or the your might the extolled the the Quran I mean sorry Muhammad says extol then the limitless glory of thy sustainer's mighty name okay فسبح باسم ربك العظيم okay so let's take a step back to Surah Al-Waqa'ah and keep in mind that it was an early revelation. What it introduces Muslims to early on is, as I said, this fundamental and basic concept that you compete and so much of the traditions by the way that and, and the discussions that we have about Surah Al-Waqa mirrors that that you can you understand status on this earth you compete for status on this earth you divide yourselves into different classes. But the wise person, person who truly is a Muslim, would think about what status, if Allah, and, and this is, by the way, what the Sufis picked up on perfectly, is that when they say that some will be in the Ashab al-Yameen, but their understanding is so primitive that it is all about consumption. So they have a very long way to go. While others who could be among Ashab al-Yameen, their understanding could be far more advanced, but they're still within Ashab al-Yameen. So even within Ashab al-Yameen, what the Sufis picked up on is that there is still a hierarchy. And if you understand that, then the more you shift your focus from your class, your status, your privilege on earth, to imagining that, well, I want to be among al-muqarrabun, those who are truly near to Allah. Well, among the Muqarrabun, I want to be among Al-Awwalun. I want to be among, if I can't make it among the Awwalun, the first rows, then at least I can make it maybe in the behind rows. If, if I'm on Ashab al-Yameen, I want to be as high as possible in Ashab al-Yameen. That was in my view, 
a necessary preliminary step to what we see in later Meccan Sur, before actually and after, because remember that much of the revelation that comes and challenges the, the, the class status of people when the Meccans tell the Prophet repeatedly, get the riffraff away and we would be willing to talk to you. And the, the, the Quran is uncompromising in that that's something there are no compromises on. The, you're not going to distance slaves from you. You're not going to distance the poor. You're not going to distance the landless. You're not going to distance those that come from non-Arab tribes or uh, tribes that are not prestigious or etc., etc. And it is adamant that that is not a game that Muslims are going to engage in. I think that Surah Al-Waqi'ah and its shift towards thinking of not your class in this earth, but your class in the hereafter, was a necessary um, psychological and epistemological step in order to be able to instill that ethic. And when we see all the emphasis and in, in the, the, um, the whole uh, typically medieval way of, of narrating the importance of the surah of saying, if you recite it, then you will not experience poverty. Well, if we look at it from a historical perspective, and we understand what is a medieval narrative that tells you if you recite something, you are not going to experience poverty. From a historical analytical perspective, what is that saying? is saying that if you recite it, you're not going to experience the tinge of classism. You're not going to experience, so, but the way that you express that, it, again, if a typical medieval narrative is to, tra is to, to transmit this, this value, this, this norm, uh, this normative, uh, demand into a into a, a protection, a shield. But as in the same way that I don't believe that the Prophet said that it is a protection from poverty, but I think what the Muslims collectively remembered is that this was an ayah, or this was a surah that challenged the idea that it is your status and your prestige on this earth that matters. And they memorialized this by saying, well, if you recite it, it protects you from poverty. And when even some of the narratives that um, it's reported sometimes re reported as one of the companions saying it and sometimes as one of as the prophet saying it 
And the story typically goes something like this. That either a companion meets another companion and he says, oh, you've aged. And, or a companion met the prophet and said, oh, prophet, you've aged. And then the response would be, shayabatni, what, what made, me, made me age is Surah Al-Waqa'ah. Sometimes it's other surah mentioned with Al-Waqa'ah. But again, did this happen? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. But what the narrative itself tells us is that the collective memory of Muslims remembered Surah Al-Waqa'ah as placing a, 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 a moral demand upon them a shift in the way they conceptualized and understood things. And you see this even in, in later th- uh, Sufi narratives that says Surat al-Waqa'ah is the friend of the poor. That if the poor want a companion, it is Surat al-Waqa'ah. Again, what are they saying by this? Why, is Surat, why would Surat al-Waqa'ah be a friend of the poor? Reading Islamic history while leaving historical methodology aside is insane. You can't read history without history. It's a contradiction in terms. The only way you can read history is by employing history. And when you employ history, the role of history is not to sit as Orientalists do and say this is a fabrication, this is from Judaism, this is from Christianity. The role of history is to help us understand the way people who lived before, before us related to meaning, to space, to time, the way they made sense of things, the way they expressed things, they interpreted things. And when you do that with a lot of the reports that surround Surat al-Waqa'ah, then its import becomes quite clear. As-sabiqoon, and muqarrabun and ashabu al-yameen, and ashabu al-shimal, or ashabu al-mash'ama, either, becomes quite clear. Now, in the midst of this, If, as I believe that the Sufis picked up on rather perfectly, is that if what Jannah is about is consumption, fruit, wine, whatever, then it is hard to imagine hierarchies without Jannah, because even if you are among the Sabiqeen, Right, the the, the, the the top tier. How much can you gorge yourself on? I mean, leave aside the point about going to the bathroom, but the, how much can you gorge on yourself on? I mean, wine is wine, honey is honey, fruit is fruit, meat is meat, 
And this was one of the many reasons that Sufis said it cannot be. Those who understand things through the call of their stomach and the call of their loins will understand this language as speaking to them at that level. But those who have gone beyond these things will understand this language as speaking at another level. And that's it. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil That's Surah al Alhamdulillah, that was so beautiful and amazing. Um, someone was just asking me if this surah has been adopted, and the answer is no, no one has adopted this surah. So if you are interested in doing that, please do let us know. Um, why don't we take a break and um, have people, if you have any questions, please send them through the chat. Um, it's truly amazing. And we'll be back in just a little bit to start the Q&A, inshallah. Okay, you want to start with something you forgot? Yeah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Just um, before we get to the questions, Joe, reminded me of something that I forgot, uh, subhanAllah. You notice that when, when um, Al-Waqi'ah starts talking about the third group, the group that are damned, what it says at the very beginning, إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا قَبْلَ ذَلِكَ مُتْرَفِينَ so the, when it starts describing why, although it doesn't tell us the, uh, the, the deeds of the first group or the second group, the, the, either the Sabiqun or, or the Ashab al-Yameen, but when it comes to those who are damned, it, it comments briefly. But it says, that they were effectively the elite in their earthly life. They were the spoiled ones. They were the mutrafin. And this is one of the, the things that, um, one of the elements as you, you the, the, the meaning of the surah unpacks that it is, it, it's flipped on its head. What used to be the mutrafin, the, the elite on earth, um, are the ones who are at the bottom of the rung in the hereafter. That's all. Okay, alhamdulillah, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, to, to me, this was such, um, I, first of all, I love the surahs that are, um, you know, very, um, very ripe for, like, exploration into the the allegorical and I think at the end when you like pulled it all together and said okay for those who thought about it like how much meat can you eat how much wine can you drink I mean it kind of was exciting the idea that yeah there's just an infinite um, potential for growth and learning and more I mean, there's so much there's got to be so much more than just what's described in the most literal fashion and someone um, close to us was sharing that, um, you know, when when you started talking about this and the idea and the concept of Jenna, that this was something new that that person had never heard before, and it was so touching that it, it made them cry because, it, like, you know, 
for a long time they actually wondered reading something like this what is sort of the point of what's so exciting about Jenna if all that means is after all of this you're just going and gorging yourself and maybe I didn't understand that but it was like revealing something that is never discussed or presented and it's it's so liberating and beautiful even the idea of like meeting yourself in the most pure form and building a part partnership or a companionship like this is an such an interesting idea because you know yourself the best or you feel the closest to yourself but then the idea of meeting yourself in a in, in a completely different form beautiful perfect is in some ways one of the greatest comforts because you're meeting yourself who you're very familiar with and yet maybe it's finally you're meeting someone who you've always wanted to be internally like intuitively you knew you could be better but you never could see it or feel it so it's it's such a beautiful idea of like comfort and and perfection and elevation all in one so i mean i just, just so anyway alhamdulillah this is like just so mind-blowing in every way um and i you know um for, I mean, maybe just a little side comment too. Um, you know, when I when I hear like in the halakhas, like all of these messages about how it's a small group of people, um, people who, like this this surah seems to speak to people who feel. Um, I mean, if you're like feeling poor or you know un or like unappreciated or un. You know, not among the people that are prestigious or of high status. Like, and thinking about, okay, now here's your opportunity to compete on a different social, a different scale of status, right? So now, you know, if you want to be in the front line closest to God, um, that's like so meaningful to me personally with what we're doing here because in our time, it's hard to talk about God and it's hard to talk about. Like even to explain to your your friends and family, like what are you doing? Oh, you're just focused on the Quran. You're focused on, you know, getting to know like your your religion and not just any religion, but Islam, which is like you know as you've said, like the the, the scariest religion, the most fearful religion. So you know by definition, it's it's like a very lonely path, as we've said many times before. But this surah really underscores for me like the specialness of what we're doing and like how um you know we're all like overachievers and like hard workers and i can see us all being or at least for me it's like i want to be on the front line you know it's like my competitive spirit you know i, I want to be in that elite and you can't even say that you know outside of this group without people thinking you're a fanatic and you're crazy and the joke here is that i am a fanatic so but i'm but these sewers make me proud to be a fanatic so um you know and someone commented, I maybe I just you know wanted to say this is uh, how I often talk about the lonely path is if it's a bad thing, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't I don't I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that you recognize that it is a very special path, and that um, for me I feel extremely blessed um, even to be among other people who appreciate a lonely path because to me this is the only path, and it's surahs like this that really I think. You know, it's it's like God is giving you a, a message that okay, what you're doing and what you want is exactly, you know, what hopefully will make a difference. Inshallah, inshallah, when it really matters. So.
continuing for whatever that's worth. Thank you, because this I think th this is so liberating and so encouraging and comforting for for a lot of people. Um, and let me start by asking you, what is the vicar in this surah? Okay. And who would like to kick off the question? This is a semi-question comment. Maybe it, it can show up as a footnote. Um, in colloquial Persian, waqa can mean, or usually means, reality or truth, the truth of reality or the truth of, a, of reality as compared to the way that things are perceived. And so having that as like the main way that I perceive that word, as you're going through the surah, it feels very interesting. Like I'm not reading it as incident or fact or, you know, when the moment arrives. It's like when the moment that reality in its most unaltered form arrives. Yeah. So I, my, you know, when, when you're explaining, see, like, like Grace said, seeing yourself um, rid of all of the baggage of the trauma and difficulty that you had in your previous life, for example, um, that is the waqa, that's kind of like the actual reality, or the reality of um, class, your class, just uh, Joe alluded to it at the end, um, your, your class being of elite on earth, but then in very bad shape uh, in, in the hereafter. The waqa, the reality of it is the opposite, essentially. So uh, my question is, is that an alternative meaning in, in classical Arabic, or do, do any of the linguists like point to that, or where do those come from? No, th th this would be very consistent with a lot of the Sufi readings of al-waqa, uh, because it's not that they the, the, it is, it, to sum up like the, the way that the Sufi-esque tradition read the waqa, it is that transformative moment. Now that transformative moment, as, as actually uh, Ibn Arabi says very clearly that for it could be the moment of death, um, and, but that would be most unfortunate because by then it's too late. Uh, or it could be, like even Ajiba says, that you are, um, you've experienced things in life that shake you to your core. That it would be the equivalent of your earth shaking and your mountains dissolving. And, and, um, and if it leads to the transformation, then you, then, then the waqa'a have become something meaningful in your life. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, um, and it's not, you know, it, they, they don't, it, it's, it's another layer of meaning. So they don't say that and waqa'a doesn't refer to the, to the final day. They say, yes, it refers to the final day and Furthermore, it there could be a waqa'a before the final day, and it depends on what you do with with the challenge. But that's precisely I think you're you're precisely on right on. Yeah.
Um, kind of, it's interesting because it's kind of building on that. Um, so we're, we're given two, we're given three archetypes for different types of people. And two of them are kind of, one is within the other. The people who are at the foremost definitely fall already within the category of the people who are on the right. And so, and that's this whole surah, I, I felt like I was looking at it through the lens because of other halakas that talked about how this moment being when you see the truth for what it is and you see everything for what it actually is. Um, and once we, in the, in the beginning when we, the mountains are described to us, um, what I, I thought of that as was, was like in the Sufi interpretation that there are these things that we build up and they can create delusions in our life. And there will be this point when, whether it's in your life or at your death, when it's going to be completely destroyed and you're going to see everything for what it is. You're no longer um, going to see false sources of false security or sources of, of false pride. So my question is, is, do you feel like this surah is calling us to investigate our relationship with things that we consume and not, not just in terms of food or sex, but even within the context of, of money, for instance, or within the context of our relationships with people? Because it, with the people on the right, like to give a hypothetical to explain what I'm trying to get at. If the people on the right, if they're given a large sum of money through success or lottery, whatever it is in their life, the truth that they would negotiate with that large sum of money is here is an opportunity to build something for my community or here is an opportunity to create some kind of good. People on the left might get that money and say, oh, this is great, I can guarantee my 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 security in retirement or I can um, I, now like I can enjoy another level of comfort in my retirement the sum of money itself it doesn't seem like really the issue is the fact that one person's rich or one person's poor it's the, the money itself is not evil but one person's relationship with something in existence is built on a delusion while the other person sees the truth for what it is which is that everything that I'm given in life is an opportunity to further deepen or further explore my relationship with the divine. Mm. And I feel like this surah is basically coming and saying, look, you can exist within delusion for now that the divine is something that you visit five times a day. Or you can wake up to the fact that every single thing, whatever you eat, that can be an opportunity to recognize the divine. Um, whoever you befriend, whoever you marry, that can be an opportunity to grow closer to the divine. And I feel like whenever, not just in this surah, but any time the Qur'an starts going through descriptions of punishment or descriptions of heaven or hell, that part of the reason why they're all descriptions of food is because it's trying to get you to think about what is your relationship with these things that you exist with on a daily basis. Because you're both going to have water in hell, and you're going to have water in heaven. Mm -hmm. But the people in hell, 
their truth that they've lived the whole life is that anything they consumed took them further away from Allah. Anything that they consumed actually destroyed their soul or hurt their soul. And they felt like they were comfortable because of the delusion. But it's like almost as if they created that hell. And they're mm. realizing how painful it was because the veil has been lifted. Well, I don't, I don't know if I, there's much to add to this because I, I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's inherent in the very idea of uh, those who are muqarrabun and those who are ashabul yameen uh, and if you if you accept that min Allah that the the closeness to Allah is not the product of uh, uh, just some act you take without understanding because and especially in in what has become modern Islam, or, or I, I'd say, at least to say, what has become the the prevailing form of modern Islam, is that you you think of those who are muqarrabun are either those who happen to be the Sahaba, or Ali Bayt, uh, or those who. Um, died as martyrs in battle, uh, and and that's pretty much it. So there, there is, and because at least modern prevailing form of modern Islam is generally anti-Sufi, and so there, the you know, and and that's part of the reason that the that so many Muslims grow with the idea. That oh the muqarrabun is just the early generations and so it's a close category, and beyond the early generations maybe those who die as martyrs. But since we're not sure, you know, in the age of nation state, we're not sure who you know. Everyone calls their dead martyrs uh, uh, for whatever you know. Then we're really then we we just end up effectively closing categories on a, a chronology, and that means. It, it it really impoverishes the Islamic tradition of so much of its richness. If after all, you know, there is just the Muqarrabun is, is a, a category inaccessible to us because it was just the early generations, and and that is actually the the, the attitude you get among so you know the idea that even that category could be open in any form to later generations is something very alien to so many modern Muslims. But that's precisely the point, is that it, what's in the classical Sufi tradition and in what I believe was, what was understood by the Surah from its, from very early generations is that you you to the extent I mean even just to the extent that you are you forgo taraf you forgo being a part of the spoiled uh, elite living in luxury 
to the extent that you build your relationship with Allah um, and as Ghazali puts it that you know you you, you understand your your relationship with material things in terms of constantly awareness of the fact that everything is from Allah and that in fact uh, you own nothing but you're just interested in the property you're just the trustee um, or even understanding the very cycle of, of life between the water and fire and all of that it, all of it is geared towards reflecting upon the, the the difference between the veils the delusions and what Allah keeps reminding you is the ultimate reality the ultimate reality that you are that will kick in right at the at the moment of real death at the moment of no return so it's not we're even that that's the irony of it is that we don't have to wait hundreds of years for that reality to materialize it, it's it's reality that kicks in with all its raw force the moment you are among the dead or you, you see the angels of death um, and, and that's um, and and so and and it's not in surah in surah al-waqa'a but um, that even though the, you you become aware something about your status not the details not the full thing but you will know whether you're in trouble or whether you're more or less okay or whether you are in a high status with God at the moment of death just by your, treat, your treatment upon death. Um, that, that brings a completely different sense of reality to things. As I, as I always say, you know, I, 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 um, I never forget when the, the fact that when I saw my mother's body, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of dead people and after they've been washed or, or, or washed dead people all of a sudden. And the thing that, uh, that, that, that is constant is that it's not a pleasant thing to see someone right after they die because if they've been sick, like my mother was, um, she had colon cancer. The um, uh, you know they they look emaciated and um, just look very disturbing. Uh, my mother looked like she has she was at least forty years younger than the age she died at, and she was smiling. Do you remember, right? Oh my God, it's it was yeah, great life, summer. Yeah, it was life transformative for me actually, um, because when I saw her face, I, I thought that's what I want. That's what I want. That she won, you know, um, because she had a really um, challenging life, um, 
and very like confronted so much injustice. Um, but she was always just so beautiful and um, patient and just beautiful. I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I mean, you can never imagine that seeing a dead body would bring you calm and peace. I mean, that's just unthinkable, but that's exactly what, what it was. You know. so. Okay, uh, this is from, uh, oh, sorry, any last call on questions here? Anybody? Okay. Um, this is from Hala on the interactive group. Um, the, <coughs> okay. Sufi says that the literal imagery in surahs like this is to appeal to common people's experiences. While the literal reading is not a deep one, is it fair to say it's not an incorrect one? If so, how do we deal with the implications of literal readings? For example, in verses 35 to 37, the use of the Arabic female plural noun is the understanding of virgin female soulmates for Ashab al-Yamin considered a valid one? And isn't this problematic in terms of attributing women's virginity to their value? Um. Oh, and you didn't give us the vicar. Uh, it's, uh, it's 95 and 96. 95 and 96. Uh, the, uh, uh, sorry, the, the verses she referred to was what? Uh, there's, uh, 35 and thir through 37. Yeah. So, notice if it is referring to um, if it is referring to Irawah, that form could be either for masculine or feminine. Um, so that that's that's one thing. That if if it is correct that it is referring to the the um, projection of the soul that is. Um, and this is sort of in the Sufi orientation. But if it's not, the, and it is referring to companions, so then, inna ansha'na hunna insha'an faj'anna hunna abkara uruban atraba li ashabi liyameen. So that their companions are um uh as we as we said that they are of well matched companions or that these are the and at least in the traditional tafsir most of them say that these are the the wives that or the the wife that you had on on earth but the the there are young and um and the abkar, there is a point is that an abkar in law is always someone who is a virgin. But 
Ibikr in linguistically is not necessarily someone who is aversion, but it is so anyone who is um How do I put it? Um, anyone who is fresh, um, uh, fresh, experiencing as if and you. So you could say the the expression "bik" um, could be used to describe. Um, uh, an intellect that has as if born anew or could be described to, could be used to describe something that you see for uh, as if for the first time so It is possible that, as the traditional school says, that you, you your mate would, and, and the traditional school says that it, it, your mates are become versions, and that every time uh, you consummate with your with your partner, they go back again to becoming versions. Now, of course, for our modern mind, that sounds strange that's the that emphasis on virginity and especially in virginity is simply um a uh, uh what do you call it the the thing that gets the the thing that gets torn what I mean? yeah it, it, so i mean it seems like well okay so and in fact as i don't remember who it was who, who what a Sufi who was referring to this and says, "Well, who who would want their wife to bleed every time?" Um, meaning he was he was well. It was in the context of a poem in which he was mocking the idea of that pe people who understand Abkar as physical virginity and saying, "Well, you know, they what does love have to do with bleeding?" Um, so yeah, it strikes the the modern mind, and I think the, the but reading the Quran in the way that it, with the with the often blend of misogyny that you find in the traditional tafsir is problematic because if if bikriya or abkar basically means that the hymen is intact, and every time you consummate, the hymen gets and then you, what does that that does seem very odd and and that's why i just um, i i don't find the traditional tafsir and i wouldn't teach the quran to a young population and offer them the traditional interpretation and leave it at that. Uh, I think that especially in the modern age, as we understand the psychology of people change and the psychology of people does evolve, and there is 
the different epistemological universe in which they dwell, um, it would be unfair to just simply give them the traditional tafsir without, at the minimum, offering them the other alternatives. It, with my children, I don't even bother with the traditional tafsir. I would just teach them what I believe is closer to the truth. Um, simply because I just don't see the Quran as a book trapped in the linguistic practices of Arabs in the seventh century. Um, linguistic practices shift and evolve. And the Quran language is ingenious enough to address what were the epistemological universe of Arabs in the 7th century and Americans in the 21st century. a question from Enjim on the interactive group. Alhamdulillah, thank you for explaining this surah so beautifully, Professor. In light of your mentioning that we should not expect surahs to necessarily work as magic potions, can you speak to this matter a little bit more? Like Rasul um, said, telling his daughter to use tasbihah to stave off the hardship of not having assistance due to poverty, if I'm not mistaken, and many other surahs used to remedy things as you mentioned. Jazakallah and Allah give you health and afiyah. Well, I mean, the, uh, the particular incident that is referred to is that she requests a, um, a servant, and um, the Prophet basically says, well, no, do tasbih instead. I, I don't read this tradition as saying that if you do the tasbih, he will become less poor. It, 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 um, but it does seem to be to be saying that if you do more dhikr, you will cope with the challenges of life better. Uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of hadith, a lot of hadith that often talk about the Quran. Uh, you know, as I said, if you, you know, there is a hadith that say if you recite Surah Al-Duha, you will find something that's lost. Or if you recite this ayah that Allah protects you in your travel, or that if you recite, and, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you don't recite the ayah in your travel, but you, it's not a talisman, it's not a, a magic potion. Um, but the hadith, or if you recite X, Y, and Z before you go to sleep, then X, this will not happen to you, or so on and so forth. And one, all of these traditions, every tradition that I've looked into, they are, even those that are said to have a, a authentic isnad, uh, they never rise to the level of authenticity 
where you can base an element of aqidah upon. Um, for an element of aqidah, element has to do with the way we understand our aqaid. It has to reach the level of tawatur, or at least where you in, you reach a level of haqqa yaqeen, um, or if not uh, about that tradition. Second, that so all of them are potentially authentic in the sense that they have correct isnads. Some, many of them don't, but you know, or some of them are more full on Rasulullah or some of them have been they, they exist in enough varieties that you start seeing uh, strong elements. But here was I that what I was saying about the historical approach is necessary because if you, if you, then the question becomes how did the, the medieval memory retain things and memorialize things and it's the if you the the more you spend time with other with an adab al-arabi especially you notice that there were particular ways to memorialize things that existed in the first three centuries of Islam, for instance, that are materially different than the ninth century, and yet are different than the, and that, um, or even the, 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 the um, and even regional changes, which is one of the most fascinating things, is that you, you the Iruwaya that comes out of Egypt has a different linguistic characters that Iriwaya that comes out of Kufa, or Iriwaya that was preserved mostly in Yemen, or so on and so forth. And that becomes an important element in analyzing these potentially authentic traditions that, and so what I, what I try to understand from them is that what value was remembered by the early Muslims that they tried to, and like in this situation, where, you know, Surah Al-Waqa'ah is supposed to be a protection from Fakr. Well, it's not a protection from Fakr. I mean, there are, I know plenty of, I grew up with people in, in Egypt who used to recite Al-Waqa'ah every single day, and they were, very poor, um, and they lived and died poor, and uh, they were always lived uh, servants of people who were much richer than, you know, vastly so. So, you know, what, what or other hadiths that say if you recite something it will be a cure or you will never get this disease or you'll never get that disease and then again living experience shows us that that's not true so what do you do with these you could either say well they're not authentic and as so many modern um you know people who become disillusioned with the hadith tradition do is that they start just rejecting it out of hand, or you 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 adopt the position of a an 
what I consider a scholarly position. You, you try to understand what value was the medieval mind trying to protect and preserve. Um, and that's, that's the point. Um, you know, I would personally love it if there, if, if, if it was as simple as that. You know, you just teach, um, you know, I personally recite Surah Al-Waqa'ah every night you know, they're, they're for many, many years, but do I really believe that the Al-Waqa'ah would prevent me from becoming homeless if, may God forbid, you know, no. I don't, I don't think that's what God expects of us. Any more questions here? Okay, I, I just have a quick question. Um, you mentioned the tradition that said that um, someone came upon another companion or upon, upon the prophet and said, you've aged. Yeah. I didn't understand, like, what was it about this that would make them age because uh, it seems that if you're reorienting um, your perspective uh -huh. to thinking that you know, whatever challenges you're facing, even if you're poor, it doesn't matter because you, you know, if you're working towards the status, high status with God. Yeah, no, the, the, this is, yeah, the, the, the uh, you, you, again, the, the, this is a very good example of, like, the power, the, the power of narrative and how narrative is, is historically contingent. Um, so when, when you, in, in that, in when you say shayabatni, whatever. So and normally, by the way, like with a um, shaya, you find it uses that that when you say shayabatni this or that, that what aged me is this or that. It was often used in in poetry in the context of being in love with someone and an unrequited requited love. Um, so you know, uh, you say say shayabatni suad. That means it, it was understood that she aged me because I love her and she doesn't bother with me. It it would not be understood as she aged me because she's a horrible person and she treats me very badly. It it was idiomatically understood that way. So what shayabatni here it means that. This surah has made me work very hard to be among the first ranks. And I keep worrying so hard about reaching the first ranks. But as the famous hadith of Omar ibn Khattab says, that even if I have one foot in and one foot out, when he says, you know, even if I have one foot in Jannah and one foot out of Jannah, I wouldn't still feel safe. Again, an exaggerated form of medieval narrative. Um, but when the, when you get that that report, shayabatni this surah, shayabatni that surah, it means that I am working very hard to live up to the expectations of the surah. And the expectations in in this surah, it would be the expectations of being among the best that you can be at the very forefront of the the curve, if you will, of 
so it's not so this is a way of saying you know i just thought it's not it's not just okay to be in the ashab al-maymana i want to be at the very head of things that that's the the that's why i mentioned this report thank you i think we're out of time and so, thank you everyone so much. Any, yeah, like, uh, any, any questions that anyone's heart will be broken if we don't answer? Oh, does anybody have any burning questions? Really burning really questions? Really burning questions. Okay, if not, let's How go. about on the interactive group, anybody? Okay. Well, if you, if we're, inshallah, inshallah, we'll be back on Tuesday. So if something else happens and your heart starts to burn, hold on to it and bring it on Tuesday. Yeah. And thank you, everyone. Wishing you a beautiful rest of the weekend. And hopefully we'll see you back here on Tuesday. So, assalamu alaikum, everybody. It's so wonderful to see you.